Welcome to a special episode of Miniatures Monthly. My name is Chris Thurston, and as ever, I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And we are here to talk. We never talk about Age of Sigma, Tom. We never do, do we? And so... <laughs> Such a broad Miniatures podcast, which we just... We cover the entire length and breadth of this wonder of the, hobby. Yeah, from, from, we, we normally would, would cast on it extremely wide, but for once, we are going to drill down deep on uh, Age of Sigma 2nd Edition. Mm. So uh, this is a obviously a one-off. This is uh, not replacing the episode for July, which will be coming later in the month. This is a, a special, basically intended to let us uh, nerd out about the huge pile of new stuff that dropped in our laps uh, just over a week ago now. Hundreds of models, reams of new books. Uh, we've sort of bought all of them pretty much, I think, between us. Yeah, I've spent like a happy you know, week and a half basically surrounded by the best age of sigma books there have been yep. in a in a like core book context not a novel context absolutely just beautiful tomes i mean the the, the, the old realm gate wars special edition things were pretty you know lavish but yeah th- these feel lavish but also dense with delicious lore and uh, proper background writing and, and amazing art so retreat. in this episode we're going to sort of do things a little bit differently to normal we're going to we are going to have a battle report Mm-hmm. Uh, from our first uh, clash in the new edition, uh, which is also the return to our uh, Zinch Stormcast rivalry, beginning of a new narrative campaign. Um, but beyond that, we're going to really just be digging into the new stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it would make sense to to do that uh, in sort of uh, focus on different aspects of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we could start by sort of taking like, a, I guess, a holistic view of the whole thing, because I think we were both surprised that this release was so broad. You know, when, you know, initially people are wondering, oh, there'll be a new starter set. Maybe it will come with updated core rules. And that sort of initial sort of trepidatious sense of how broad this might end up being has kind of grown and grown until, you know, this has ended up being uh, a new core book simultaneous with a new general's handbook, which you normally expect would arrive like six months later to kind of like tidy things up um, alongside the most substantially sort of essential feeling expansion the game has ever had in malign sorcery the magic expansion um and then like a week later uh, a new stormcast battle tome which obviously uh is is extremely relevant to you and a new nighthawk battle tome mm. um but between all of those things like the entire heart of the game has been basically replaced yeah i think the rules have been updated sensibly and they're like a a sort of sensible progression in the same direction uh, everything else feels so extra though it feels so much bigger than i mean let's cast our minds back to when we first bought the starter sets did you buy the, the original i didn't set? no i just got the um first general's handbook because that was around the time i was getting into it yeah if i recall i can't remember what the core book was like in that set mm. uh i think it came with it came with a book I'm, I'm certain but i couldn't really remember it it's somewhere in my house <laughs> <laughs> uh who knows what it where it's gone um the the core book for the new edition isn't is a beautiful piece of work i think it's, it's on a path for me with the 40k rule but i think i i might I, even be better i think it's better actually mm. like i think um 
I think it achieves a lot more across a much broader span of ways of playing the game. Mm, interesting. Um, and I think also, I think also it, it sort of, it benefits tremendously weirdly from the fact that like, this is Age of Sigmar kind of coming of age, I think, mm. like as a setting specifically. Maybe yeah, we can get sure. into that when we talk about the law. Mm. Um, but this feels like a kind of, uh, real first consolidation of all of the good ideas that were in it previously and brushing over some bad ideas and mm. kind of just bringing everything up to speed. The 40k, the job of the 40k core book was to reintroduce a universe that you're probably pretty familiar with yeah. you know if you're into warhammer and and basically to avoid changing too much about it you know mm. what i mean it's, it sort of brings up some things up to speed but it's very kind of set in mm. some ways whereas this feels like kind of wildly inventive and it's surprising which is something that the core the 40k core book didn't manage to be for me yeah it's a sign i think particularly with the way that the mortal realms themselves are envisioned in this book that um the Games Workshop has a clear idea of what this setting is now in a way that they, that wasn't apparent at all when this Age of Sigmar was new. Yeah. Even for the first 18 months of Age of Sigmar, I mean, you have to remember how much has happened. Like they didn't even have a Warhammer community website. They didn't have a Twitch stream. Uh, they had a Facebook page, but it's, it was updated nowhere near as much as it is now. Like it's, it's, it's a totally different way of engaging with people and it's an absolutely necessary way of engaging with people in 2018. Yeah. And absolutely. between that, um, that process of kind of communicating, actually talking with the audience, feels like they've learned what people like about the Age of Sigma setting and then just kind of almost fed back to us with their ideas and kind of just turned that sort of collaborative discussion into the yeah. universe that everyone can enjoy. We can get into this, I guess, when we talk about law, but something that I'm really glad about is they have introduced the thing people were clamoring for. Well, the thing people were clamoring for was, can we have old Warhammer back, please? <laughs> But one of the ways that manifests beyond simply wanting the clocks to turn back was, can we have something, you know, a bit grimmer? Can we have something where you know where the grain comes from? And my concern as somebody who liked Age of Sigmar's kind of mad high fantasy thing is that I'm always wary when companies get afraid of their audience. And mm. there was obviously a big danger of that. Uh, and something that I admire across the board with AOS second edition and how that stuff's been handled is that stuff is there now, but it's an and not an or, you know what I mean? They, they have found ways of having crazy high fantasy stuff live alongside and here's Bob. He makes bread and oh, he's been eaten by a ghost live in the same universe in a way that feels like they benefit from each other mm. rather than like it's trying to cater to two different tastes or something like that. Yeah. And I think that's a kind of consistent story across the whole thing. Mm. Um, I suppose if I have a, uh, and maybe this is a, a, a broad ranging thing. Um, if I have a complaint or a criticism of this set of things, it's that it feels like one coherent set of things. Um, and as somebody who's into pretty into it, it feels, I feel like, um, I feel like there's no part of it I couldn't have got, right? Hmm. So that is my initial feeling that like the core book and the general's handbook and line sorcery are also kind of tightly interrelated that they may as well all come in the same box. Hmm. Like you don't get necessarily a fully complete experience from any of them. And there are specific examples of this. Like I love, uh, it's, the new definition of how narrative play works, for example, where it's better defined. There's a more coherent, uh, uh, you know, examples of how a narrative campaign might work, which encourage people to try these kinds of play that they wouldn't normally. Hmm. And that's all in the core book. 
but the special rules for narrative play, which allow you to factor in, uh, you know, we'll get to this in our battle report, but we use one of those rules in our battle report, allow you to reflect a battlefield condition or something that's not designed to be competitive. It's designed to reflect something that's happening thematically. That's just in the general's handbook. Yeah. And the general's handbook was previously like the competitive handbook. Mm. So why is that in the general's handbook and not in the core book? Right. And there's all these sort of slight elements of weirdness where like, it feels like a section ends in the core book and then begins again in the general's handbook yeah, and yeah. then passes off to Malign Sorcery, Malign sorcery for context. the map. Like, yeah. Or the other example, another thing we'll probably get to realmscape rules mm. in the core book, you find out what it means to fight in each realm. And then in Malign Sorcery, you find out what spells are available yeah. and what magic artifacts are available in each realm. And so on the critical side, that feel, it feels like, um, feels very much like an upsell. Like there's a, you know, mm. there's a lot more stuff to own now with AOS, uh, in every sense from simply previously just needing maybe a battle tone, but really just core rules and some scrolls. That ties into the new summoning rules, of course, as well, which is mm. another form of upsell, which I think we just do. I, I've mixed up. I think we discussed that last time. On we podcast. did. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, as you say, you need a sideboard for certain armies. Now you just kind of have to have that if you're going to be playing in a match play context. Uh, yeah. So that, that's definitely an element to it. Though I do think that based, based on the cool book alone, uh, the core book alone, you're going to get some cool games. Uh, yeah. And you, you can, but you'll basically have a good experience with it. And you'll perhaps more importantly, it will, Tickle your imagination in the way that uh, previous, so many previous releases haven't quite. The core book genuinely has, you know, previously, if, if someone was, uh, and I've had this experience with a friend recently, someone was curious about Age of Sigma, mm. who liked the old world. Previous, I'd, previously, I'd recommend a few novels to them, yeah. uh, Spear of Shadows, Call of Archaeon. Now I definitely recommend the core book. Mm. And the, there wasn't like a, a game resource for it previously that stuff it's like read the core book there's so much good stuff in it yeah yeah and actually i think you're right like i like my because that was my initial response was like this stuff is 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 all these books are essential and then i realized actually what's surprising to me is how big this toolbox has gotten Mm. like with the mindset i want to have access to the maximal number of options yeah you need every book now and the rules are spread out in different places however that's partly a testament to the fact that the possibility space of the game has opened up mm. so much. Um, and you can, you know, they're, they're selling like similar to how they've done in 40k and they did with Age of Sigma first edition towards the end. Um, you know, like the 25 pound starter box where you get some secretors and some ghosts and you can start playing straight away. Mm. I believe you can play and have a nice time with that and not worry about malign sorcery or realmscape yeah. rules or anything else. But now that stuff is there waiting for you, basically, mm. as soon as the hooks arrive. Yeah. Uh, I would pay, uh, I would praise, uh, the art in the new book specifically. Yeah. I think they've, uh, on the art front, they've, there's been a massive jump, uh, since mine portents actually started. Um, but mm. particularly in this book, there are some astonishing, just beautiful two page spreads. Uh, just astonishing bits of fantasy art that I would compare up with, you know, the art I saw do, done for the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, I own quite a lot of art books and things like that. And a, a lot of the artwork in this book is more evocative and, and, and more kind of without, her, you know, there being too much text around it to contextualize it. It gives you the kind of mind's eye vision of what this universe is like. Like the, there are, it, it's quite hard to paint a god <laughs> fighting a god beast or it's, and it's quite hard to paint a god trapped in a kind of yeah, internal mortal realms next to me now One of yeah the best of which is a uh, slanesh uh in his prison slanesh is just kind of like this twisted silhouette with a burning purple heart and uh these chains going to these kind of mystical pillars that stretch around him in this kind of vast seeming ever space uh, and that is uh just 
outstanding. I think the, the, the artwork in this book is absolutely outstanding. And the reason I think artwork is important to Warhammer specifically, uh, and one of the reasons why I think that Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000 struggles in motion so much is that the game, as you play it on the tabletop, is about frozen tableaus. Mm. Uh, everyone makes their moves, and then you create a scene that is still. And for me, that's how everyone really experiences this hobby. So still paintings that evoke a moment of action uh, are especially powerful because that's kind of what ends up being reflected on the tabletop. Yeah. And it always loses something when it's put into motion or it's animated. Even though I enjoy games like Dawn of War and things like that, it does lose something compared to this, you know, the amazing crimson fists on the, on the hill with, you know, yeah. fending off chaos. Yeah. We were joking about this when we were looking through the uh, Stormcast book just before we started recording, but you know, the, 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 the situation, I guess, that occurs in every bit of Warhammer art, or at least a couple of times per tome that will never occur in real life is the triangular pile of men firing <laughs> in lots of different directions. Yeah, which is, as yeah. orcs or tyranids or undead or whatever. <laughs> Come at them. And it's a, it's a classic way to, you know, compose the scene, but it looks so good. And yeah. that's kind of what the models look like. They're posed the same way. You know? Well, I mean, I guess we're getting to, like, I feel this way across the board that, like, um, your minds, I think, uh, temp- very speaking very broadly, I think miniatures war games have a, a specific relationship with your mind's eye mm. that other forms of games don't. Mm. So, like I play pen and paper role playing games. I love pen and paper role playing games, and they are sort of pure like um, like word magic, right? Like that's like there's a uh, not to get all kind of. Um, Sudi about it, but there is a sort of uh, an evocative power to sitting around a table and all of you sharing mm-hmm. in this vision of something that has no uh, visual reference. Maybe you play with miniatures sometimes, but like I don't like it, yeah. it's all theatre of the mind. Um, and a miniatures game is is it can be lots of different things because you have a visual reference, and if that visual reference is unpainted grey plastic on a on a dining table, then you've got to work. You know, maybe even hurts it a little bit that mm-hmm. it, it, it it makes everything seem smaller. And then that builds up to this very unique thing where you have miniatures that you've poured lots of time and effort into uh, clashing over, you know, some nice terrain. Like the point we've got to it now, like yeah. we felt this when we went from playing on this kind of unadorned table, wooden table, to when I got the the terrain board painted and suddenly it lifts it up. And you start to move away slightly from theatre of the mind towards actualizing this tableau, as yeah. you say. But then you need a little bit of glue to make it all kind of come to life. And that's, I think, where world building steps in mm. and you get a sense of like, oh, like, you know, I painted my Zinch army kind of in the colors of the art of the front on the front of the Zinch book, which is another really good evocative yeah. bit of art. It looks like this kind of demonic scream given form. And I kind of want, that's what's in my head when my army is, even if I'm just picking up a little pink gribble man and moving him six inches towards your big gold man, yeah. that's what is happening in my head now. And the whole thing is this process of accretion, but it, you know, while you and I, you, were, you and I were capable of uh, running a kind of evocative narrative campaign without that stuff, it only benefits from having Games Workshop sweep in with just books full of really good new art yeah. that give you a sense of how things might look or feel. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. There is a kind of collective imaginative effort that goes into creating, uh, doing it, at least in narrative anyway. It's pretty different in a competitive sense, but even then it looks great in you know going to warhammer world and playing in a tournament yeah. everyone's got their stuff painted everyone cares about it and i think really like even the most hardcore tournament weary uh player wouldn't enjoy it in the same way if you're just playing with you know wooden blocks instead of these models yeah uh, there's they are an essential part of the pleasure of the hobby and yeah their personality is important yeah. as well and, yeah. and the worlds they fight over and i think um 
Well, let's let's move on to law, I guess, because that's, yeah, sure. that's kind of you know what 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 we're orbiting law and uh, I don't really like the word fluff, but like the the creative, the world building side of the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, the core book's really interesting because it gives it's both more specific about a lot of things in that um, it goes into a lot more. It starts the core book begins basically at the moment the old world blows up hmm. and it goes all the way through everything that's already happened. So the Realmgate Wars all the way up to malign importance and there's some, maybe some things to dig into there but broadly speaking it's this kind of like um to use a painting analogy it's like the highlight pass <laughs> on a base coat yeah that had already been done <laughs> and then the base coat maybe got a wash at some point in the last couple of years <laughs> and now it's got all them winks yeah and it's starting to sparkle yeah exactly yeah so the um if you're not too familiar, maybe we should just go over very briefly the kind of the yeah the the pattern of the world, the, the, the vague arc that is it, it happens before the Age of Sigma, which kind of informs what happens in the Age of Sigma. Mm. So that the old world blows up, and uh, Sigma clinging onto Malus, which is the core of the old world, goes hurtling off into space, falls into despair. Everything's gone. The chaos is won. Uh, then he meets Dracothian, who is kind of this vast star spirit who appears to mere mortals as a kind of shifting constellation that you have to study for years to even be able to see. Mm. Um, but uh, together they sort of form a plan and uh, they sort of, Sigma puts together a pantheon and starts to make allies with the gods. And I think that's the start of the age of myth, if I'm yeah. right. Uh, and the pantheon includes, uh, it makes allies with Nagash, the god of the dead, uh, and Alariel and yep. uh, Teclis probably, and, and Larion and Tyrion. And, and Rathi. And, and, and yeah. They a lot of unlikely kind of allies come together because and, chaos um, is just Grimnir and Grungni. Oh yeah, of course the two uh, dwarf now Dwarden gods, yeah. um, and together they sort of they they battle chaos and they do it just god to god by the sounds they, of it. They don't actually battle chaos oh, straight right. away. They they fight. They basically clear out the monsters, <laughs> right? Because this is so you know, and then basically what were the winds of magic in the old world coalesce into realms which now actually have kind of form mm. where they're like sort of swirling nebula of magic and towards the center of that accretion disc <laughs> is a world with continents and seas and oceans and arable farmland and all that and yeah. then towards the edge of it towards what's now called realm's edge you get like crazier versions of the magic that defines that realm mm. so it's no longer just like this is fireland it's on fire <laughs> It's, this is, you know, land is sort of defined by that. So maybe everything's slightly more flammable, but towards the edge, everything's on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when they first encounter them, they're dangerous simply because like that, all of that kind of wild magic creates kind of beasts and monsters. Mm. But actually it's interesting. The chaos gods are absent. Um, right. They're kind of elsewhere. Oh yeah, of course. Point, it's only probably us. eating 40k. <laughs> but it's only, it's, it's when they start building, isn't it? It's when they start putting down fortresses and they start, cities start appearing and basically humans start moving in. Is, yeah. is that's Chaos's way in? Is it? That's yeah. The, the it sort of attracts crossed. them across yeah. time and space. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually just finds those old kind of, uh, human jealousy and, you know, uh, the, yeah. just the old vices really. Yeah. It, yeah. It's tracking through the kind of the way mortals are. Mm. Um, even, even when they're at their best, which is kind of a nice touch that mm. like, and even the fact that like Sigmar's pantheon is kind of like an old school kind of Greco Roman pantheon in that they're constantly squabbling and falling out with each other. Yeah. Um, you know, as are the chaos gods, obviously, but chaos gods are, are sort of a, a different order of being mm. basically like most of, most of Sigmar's pantheon used to be mortal, including Sigmar. And so they, ha they are vulnerable to the same things. And, mm. and so this sort of corruption comes in even despite best intentions. It's not any one person's kind of tragic fall. It's just a sort of inevitability because of how mortals are. works, yeah. And that's sort of the explanation for why they're called the mortal realms. Like mm. they are, even though they're 
massive balls of magic floating in a sort of celestial ocean, hmm. they are kind of defined by sort of the kind of vagaries of mortal life, which hmm. is its kind of cosmology as opposed to literal space. Then, after a period that, uh, that sounds stressful but good for people relatively, mm. uh, people are coming back into the realms, uh, that the pantheon starts to collapse thanks partly to chaos, but also thanks largely to Nagash. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, so they, they, there's a great kind of rift, and that this is when the main conflict begins. And uh, bit by bit, they lose to chaos, don't they? They kind of get overrun, and they have to keep falling back. And there comes a point where chaos is so, so powerful... Uh, Sigmar just goes to the realm of Azir, shuts the gates, and says, screw y'all. Yep. <laughs> I'm gonna hide here and see how this pans out and try and make a plan. And he just, he just lets the rest, let rest of his uh, pantheon go and all of his people and all of his cities mm. and lets them fall. They, they sort of all go their different ways. The, the core book's actually pretty good on like how exactly this happens, right. like how Sigmar and Nagash fall out. Um, which sort of starts with Nagash getting jealous, but then leads to Sig- um, Nagash then not showing up to a really crucial battle against Archeon. Mm. And things sort of starting to fall apart. Alariel basically becoming enormously depressed when Nurgle gets all over the realm of life. Yeah. And Tyrion and Teclis basically buggering off to, to, um, find more creative ways to carve up Slanesh. Um, basically all the elves bugger off to do their own thing because it's what they do mm. and so there's there's a really nice it, it goes into a little bit more detail about how how all of that kind of shakes out which mm. is appreciated it, do, it does it seem like um it's because as you said before that because of the vagaries of the, their mortal nature or is it is it are they manipulated by chaos in that it, i don't not fully like it's it's sort of like chaos finds a way into all of the different realms mm. eventually um, but chaos is kind of let in by immortals ultimately. Yeah. yeah. Like, um, it's sort of, you know, like the realm of fire, people are very passionate and they, you know, they, um, that sometimes expresses itself as like athletic competition. People from the realm of fire tend to be very athletic, you know, interested in like gladiatorial combat. And then there's a sort of natural escalation of yeah. like everyone has more and more extreme or, or, um, scandalizing gladiator arenas until one day you got yourself a corn yeah like um and uh you know each of the realms kind of goes a bit wrong in one of these ways and the gods are sort of like it like maybe too proud to see it happening but mm. they don't like uh the gods the chaos gods do start messing as we'll get to messing with um the other gods in time but i think in that initial fall it is it's allowed to not it is allowed to be like a kind of you know here oh here we go again kind of yeah. moment mm. in fact the way a lot of the realms fall like um my favorite and i you know i have a i have a, a fondness for the realm of metal anyway but the the way the realm of metal falls is amazing um because the realm of metal is composed of floating islands which are linked by mini realm gates basically mm. so um it is it is sort of even in even towards the middle it is a kind of crazy place um but it's sort of very rich in trade and mineral resources and things until one day there are there are great creatures called god beasts uh, which are sort of vast kind of love, like Leviathan space monster, mm. basically. Um, they're, they're the sort of legacy of the law that was built up over the course of the Realmgate Wars books. And they're kind of recontextualized, but these are some of the things that, um, these are some of the things that those gods had to deal with. So like, Oh, we forgot Gorka Morka, who's or, oh, also yeah. a member of that pantheon. Yes. And, and it wasn't going to be a member of the pantheon until Sigmar said, well, your job is to fight all of the god beasts. <laughs> and so off Gorka Morka went perfectly happy fighting all the god beasts. Mm. And so basically Gorka Morka ran out of god beasts to fight. 
and then bellowed at space and then jumped into space <laughs> to fight space. Okay. <laughs> and that's the last anyone's seen of Gorkamorka. Excellent. Um, but basically this is a uh, god beast called the Load Griffin descends on the realm of metal, oh, which yes. is a, a, a colossal, like continent sized magnetic griffin. I'm not joking. <laughs> that squats in the middle of the realm mm. and causes a kind of magnetic catastrophe that fundamentally unsettles the economies. <laughs> of the, uh, and I like to think, and this is supposed to be because it's sort of a great kind of ecological cataclysm, mm. but I like to think this because all the money keeps flying away towards the, like the anti-capitalist space griffin. So the the various uh, fickle nations of, of the realm of metal send uh, a conclave of wizards to slay the magnetic griffin. Good, look, have fun. Yeah, how many wizards do you think they sent? Uh, did they send one? No. Did they send ten? No. Did they send nine? They sent nine oh, wizards. Man, rookie error. It's such <laughs> yeah. a rookie error. And guess what? One by one, the wizards all did what they were supposed to do. Mm. But guess what the ninth wizard did? Uh... Did he reach out? He revealed bit. himself to be a gaunt summoner, flew away on a disc, and allowed the uh, the death throes of the load griffin to tear a big hole to the crystal labyrinth in the sky, allowing the demons of Zinch to, to fully Magnificent. invade the realms. In fact, they've they've kind of uh, they've kind of recontextualized what happened when chaos arrived. Is it's always a demonic invasion. Like mm. people start turning, and so there are like you know, worshippers of malign powers around in the realms for a while, but then something goes wrong in every realm that basically opens the floodgates mm. to the Gribble men. And that's when things go seriously badly wrong. Right. Huh. And after that, you get the Age of Chaos. Yep. Sigmar shuts, shuts the doors and Chaos just like runs rampant and across all the realms. And uh, I think... I can't remember what it's called in the books, like a, a hundred years. It just belongs to corn, basically. Mm. Uh, it's like the red century or something like that, where, because there are so many mortals just living in places and they've, and chaos just wants to kill them all or convert them. And that's, corn's really good at that. That's corn's whole deal. You know, each, you know, loves that initial change that, you know, that yeah. shift of power, but then it's corn's turn to kind of rampage and go across the realms. And this is why when the Age of Sigmar eventually begins, Corn is the main villain because Corn is the one that has basically conquered a lot of it. Yeah. And it feels like, um, Nurgle is just loves the realm of life. And that seems to be a great extension of Nurgle's garden. Mm. Uh, Zinch perhaps has to take a back seat when things just become a bit monotonous again, you know? Like yeah. Zinch sort of like has a surge of power and then sort of settles into the realm of metal as mm. sort of like a kind of biding time, undermining the others giving toys to the Skaven kind of way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course, Sinesh is missing and the Skaven are just be between the cracks and no one really knows what they're doing. They've kind of, um, on, on the Skaven actually, it does a good job of kind of recontextualizing the Skaven and the Great Horned Rat yeah. as kind of like sort of the god of underdogs. Mm. Like kind of the god of sort of, to kind of define what, why the Great Horned Rat could be a chaos god. It's sort of the god of kind of like forgotten things. Mm. So sort of, which, which does position them the Skaven slightly to the left of Nurgle and slightly to the left of Zinch, which are the two that they're closest to in yeah. terms of having a cold and plotting a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is super cool. Yeah. That's really neat. Uh, I'm glad the book does that actually, because we, we, we had a discussion about um, the Skaven and specifically why they were chaotic. Yeah. Outside of just being simply rotten, you know, disease spreading, which is how the rats are traditionally seen. Uh, but basically, uh, during this time, Sigma falls into despair, which is the thing that happens to the gods quite often, which is quite a Greek god thing, isn't it? It's quite yeah. a... Uh, mope. Uh, yeah, just to mope for a long time. And it's also very, you know, like a Magnus thing. It's, it's a thing that a lot of the, the Primarchs and gods of the various Warhammer universes, like they... It's one of the reasons why they aren't... 
just too alien to be yeah. invested in because they get sad when things go wrong. Um, Sigmar's, uh, Sigmar forms a plan with Grungni, the smith god, and, uh, Tracotian, who is, you know, his original savior, and he starts stealing heroes from throughout the mortal realms from throughout history, in fact. Just any time a mortal has fought chaos and proved their heroism, either through, you know, acts of courage or, you know, acts of being smarter than chaos or acts of magic, they are plucked uh, into the realm of Vizier and they are reforged as Stormcast Eternals. And that is the birth of the, the new kind of poster army for Age of Sigmar. Mm. Uh, and once he feels as though uh, chaos is about to completely overrun all of the realms and, and claim total victory. Only then does he fling open, uh, the gates of Vizier uh, in one direction. It's a one way thing. And yeah. he hurls the, the armies of, uh, Sigmar out down to, uh, the realm of Akshi, isn't it? Yeah, it's that, that, first. That's the, that's the first. That's where the hammers of Sigmar come down. Vander's hammer hand leads the charge. Yeah. There, there are sort of like semi simultaneous strikes in, um, Realm of Life as well from mm. the Hallowed Knights and That's right. Realm of Metal from the Celestial Vindicators. Yeah, so, so he has a plan from the start to try and get the gang back together, which is why he wants to go into the, the Realm of Life and try and find Ilariel. Mm. Uh, and he also, he desperately needs beachheads. He just desperately needs, you know, space and he needs to capture realm gates, which is the only way to travel between the realms unless you're a god or something like that. Mm. Uh, and so this is the great kind of striking out. And this is the beginning of Age of Sigmar. This is where the the first starter set comes in and this is where the whole new kind of everything yeah. is reset from that point and that's what's been super cool about being a fan of this over a couple of years is like now seeing it all kind of consolidated and seeing those stories we already know invested with a little bit more detail it feels like this is the point where people actually started playing mm. if you know what i mean it's not like there's more lore and then the game begins mm. uh which is i think a weakness of, of 40k which has sort of been orbiting the late 41st millennium for a, a very long time right yeah. like the game began with that moment, the beginning of the Realm Gate Wars, and it's progressed hundreds of years since. And you can kind of feel it mm. in both where the armies have progressed and, and everything else. Yeah. The, um, uh, about two years into Age of Sigma, there was a, uh, kind of a community event that established three cities. And I mean, it was always seemed likely that that was going to happen based on the way the event was structured. Yeah. <laughs> but still, nonetheless, it, players had a hand in founding the first new cities after the Age of Chaos. Uh, and the interesting thing about the Ark of Age of Sigmar is that it's sort of copying the Ark of the Age of Myth, and the same problems are coming back as uh, cities have formed yeah. and established. Chaos is finding the same old routes back in, uh, but and the gods are trying to find different ways of actually pushing Chaos back, and uh, part of that is via proxies, which is uh, an interesting aspect of the Age of Sigmar. Why doesn't Sigmar just go down and punch corn? Mm. <laughs> and... Uh, it's because they tried that. <laughs> yeah. Didn't work. Um, that they kind of want the mortals to sort it out for themselves. So it's, actually, help. it's actually, it's actually evading me at the moment. There is actually an explanation why the gods don't fully manifest. It's right. kind of, I think they are sort of, there's, they've done a lot more to invest like the sort of logic of the world a bit. So mm. soul power is definitely a thing. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Who's getting souls, where they're coming from, all that stuff's very linked to the kind of mechanism of how the realms operate. Uh, but also divine power is sort of invested by prayer. So the gods actually are more powerful, not acting in a way, but kind of mm. acting through mortals that believe in them. Right. It's sort of this weird kind of recursive godhood thing where <laughs> it's like, you're better off the board unless you have a model, in which case, <laughs> unless you're Lariel on the gash, in which case it's fine. Just sure. go in there, just yeah, wade in. Exactly. Yeah. Though I, I think it always kind of depends on personality. Like the gash would wade in. Like he's, yeah. he's such a kind of weird, uh, emotional figure. 
that he would if he was yeah, really although, annoyed he'd yeah, get that's, stuck in. you're not wrong but that is <laughs> the, the plot of the undying king which is the josh reynolds book about nagash which i really like mm. is basically um arkan saying uh nagash do you want to participate no <laughs> you want, uh would you like no would you like to okay fine then don't oh, i'm coming now <laughs> <laughs> that i i love that about nagash he, he's one of my favorite characters in warhammer yeah and uh, from all the old world as well like he's always been kind of like this <laughs> yeah, exactly. he's just really well, he's such an asshole <laughs> really uh, just yeah he's very he's, he's the ultimate contrarian really like he always was yeah in the um, old world and the um that's one of the reasons i really love so um one of the things the core book does is close off the Malign Portents storyline, which right. ended with the Malign Portents book. As we've explained, um, maybe this is skipping to the to the end or right to the beginning of the Soul Wars, which is mm. the new be- beginning of the narrative. But it'd be interesting to get ahead to the Necroquake <laughs> yes. and how and what that was and why it happened, <laughs> which is fucking delicious yeah. Warhammer nonsense. It's excellent stuff. So, excellent nonsense. So they've established that in every realm, there is a particular kind of condensed form of magic called Realmstone. Mm. It takes a different form in every realm and warpstone which skaven have been eating and shoving into guns forever is actually has sort of been retconned as a kind of a corrupted form of realmstone so it's their own pocket version of realmstone basically hmm. uh, it's sort of implied that it can be formed out of any realmstone and realmstone takes a different form in every realm yeah and this is mostly detailed in the line sorcery book but like in the realm of shadows it's sort of like a spider web in the realm of fire it's like a burning rock in in the realm of life it's a uh, green ice that's constantly turning to steam and recondensing and melting and, and turning back into ice. No, right. Um and in the realm of death it's sand and it's sand that runs in rivulets endlessly and each rivulet represents a mortal lifespan. So it's it's like uh, the hour the, the collective hourglass right. of yeah, every yeah. living thing. And it's um and realmstone tends to be condensed on the edges of realms uh, back where the magic is strongest and it's very rare and very coveted it's the most valuable thing in 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 the mortal realms um however nagash decided because nagash feels that all souls are owed to him and mm. also he's the best wizard um to uh try and concentrate all of the uh, realmstone the, the grave sand of the realm of death in one place at the center of the realm and in order to do this he sent skeletons out to walk to the edge of the realm, pick up a handful of grave sand and walk back. <laughs> and he did this for millennia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, and there's this, it's a slight retcon, but basically, so they, one of the reasons that Nagash wasn't helpful during like the beginning of the Age of Chaos, the entire Age of Chaos, uh, is that Arkan the Black was basically m- negotiating the stupidest, longest fetch quest <laughs> in, in history. Mm. And, turns that grave sand into shade glass which you recognize from Shadespire hmm. it's a nice little link uh, and forms it into a big black pyramid because what is Nagash always doing he loves it doesn't he, he loves that one shape he does it over and over again it's like what are we doing tonight Nagash well, that's the same Building thing a giant. I, I, I love the descriptions of the endless rows of skeletons it's not like just sending one at a time they are in vast lines a convoy kind of yeah. like a giant kind of conga line going to the edge of the world and or back like ants yeah <laughs> yeah right yeah little ants carrying back sand for a millennia just like handful by handful piling this stuff into the center of the realm to create the shade glass um great image and he he forms this um he forms this uh great inverted py- floating pyramid this one's upside down though isn't it yeah that's right um, it's Twist. hovering in the air above the center of uh, Nagashizar, which is his sort of city. Hmm. And this is, um, 
And each of the, the gods, including the chaos gods, kind of realized that this is a really bad thing. Basically fundamentally alters the balance of death magic mm. and it could potentially funnel lots of energy into Nagash. And uh, so they sent out a sort of, um, warnings to their followers, which were the, the which were the malign portents. So that's mm. kind of what that was, which each of the gods saying, do something about this. In the malign story, we talked about this when we discussed it. Yeah. Months ago now. Um, at the end of that story, it's revealed that, um, you know, a particular, like, I think it's a Lord Aquila actually kind of like tricks Vander's hammer hand of, of the hammers of Sigmar into like entering this massive four way battle between death, chaos, destruction and order that kind of ends in everybody falling into the ground, basically being mm. swallowed up and the forces. And that battle is, is enormously destructive and basically means that no one manages to lay siege to Nagashizar. The end of my importance had a specific outcome with everyone breaking out of the underworld and freeing lots of dead souls back to big life. And that was based on player activity. But the point was that they were all sort of locked into a fight with each other and didn't stop Nagash. Yeah. Then at the end of that story in, in my importance, it reveals that that Lord Aquila was actually this changeling hmm. and that Zinch did that. Um, and then the core book, it finally explains why. Hmm. And it's because Zinch has been backing Nagash the entire time. <laughs> Which is sort of what yeah, you were saying earlier, totally, that like, yeah. which, and it's because Zinch knew what would happen. So Zinch also let, um, basically a lot of things went wrong for the Skaven, um, in that they tried to, uh, cause it's obviously a big concentration of Realmstone, which the, the Skaven cover, even when it's not Warpstone. Yeah. So they wanted to steal it because of course they did, because mm. it's basically this giant inverted black wedge of cheese in the center of Shyish. Um, but they dug a tunnel that came out in the wrong place and accidentally drained an ocean into the, into Blight City, uh, which is how they encountered the Ideneth Deepkin. Right. Because they came out in the sea. They tried to dig a tunnel through reality to get into the, underneath Nagashizar, mm. came out in the wrong place and began what is called the Year of the Drowned Rat, <laughs> where they basically emptied a, an ocean in the realm of death into their own city. Wow. Like idiots. But long story short, eventually Clan Eshin managed to get spies and thieves into Nagashizar. <laughs> While Nagash is distracted by all of every, literally everybody else fighting outside the gates of the city. Hmm. It turns out by the time the ritual is ready and the Black Pyramid is complete, the Black Pyramid is in full of Skaven. <laughs> <laughs> they always find a way. They do. Like, they're like life. Um, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum as the Great Horned Rat. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be an excellent voice. Was there ever <laughs> yeah, a film exactly. of it? Um, the, uh, this is my favorite thing. Um, and this is very much all as planned, apparently. Hmm. The Black Pyramid starts to spin, uh, which is what it was intended to do. But it spins out of control because, uh, and in doing so, mulches all of the rats that are inside <laughs> it. But this is basically like sets the centrifuge off at a weird angle. Basically, hmm. it unbalances a meticulously planned spell and causes Nagash's Great Black Pyramid to drill a hole through the center of the realm of death. Hmm. Um, creating this shyish oubliette, I think, which is, um, essentially a magical black hole. Yeah. The, the nadir of the shyish nadir. That's, that's it. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, which then, um, like explodes and creates a shockwave of death magic that ripples across every single realm, which is called the necroquake, mm. which brings the dead back to life, like everywhere, causing the rise of the night haunt, which mm. is the new kind of ghosties from the core box. Um, but also basically means that like, 
you know, the, the Windsor magic always exists in kind of balance with each other. Mm. And this sends magic everywhere completely crazy and basically resurrects wild magic and all of this, the endless spells and all of this stuff that, um, uh, you know, every wizard everywhere finds themselves more powerful all of a sudden. Yeah. There's a nice description of like sort of, uh, street level conjurers who would previously just be like doing tricks for kids, finding themselves clicking their fingers and fireballs erupting from their hands and yeah. things like that. Right. And that's why Zeech did it. Hmm. Cause like hmm. every wizard just got a lot more powerful because Nagash is a doofus. <laughs> <laughs> no word yet on how Nagash himself has taken this news. I think the last anyone, the, the description is that he's basically standing in the middle of the Shayosh Nadir eating all of the magic. Like, oh, <laughs> oh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because he thinks he can take all of it. And that's the thing. That's his great, because yeah, like yeah. Nagash is sort of like, it's, I like that twist that like Nagash is sort of like endless ambition yeah, and yeah. always his sense that he's always being slighted is what makes him such an easy mark for Zinch specifically. Mm. Like Sigma is probably an easy mark for Korn. Yeah. Because martial honor. Come and fight, fight me. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons why Sigma has to sit it out because it's like, hmm. if he really wants to hit people with the hammer, give the hammer to someone else <laughs> and make sure they stay in line. Yeah, yeah. Cause otherwise you're playing directly into corn tats. I, I like the element of the cosmology. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. So this is set up the, the age of Sigma is the soul wars as they're called, mm. uh, which is interesting. Like we were talking about the whole setting about a year ago and, and basically said it's a war of souls really when it comes down to it. Yeah. The gods are basically, uh, Sigma has stolen souls from the gash. And, uh, the, the stuff that the core rule book introduces and the Stormcast Eternals Battle Tome introduces, uh, a slight retcon here is that, um, when Sigmar sent out his forces, when Chaos was about to overrun all the realms, when he started the Age of Sigmar, his whole process wasn't ready. Like, right. he, the reforging process was a work in progress thing and he hadn't perfected it and he knew that there was a flaw in it. And when Stormcast were being reforged, a lot of them were coming back different and losing parts of themselves and changing and basically becoming less and less human. And that's the big theme of the new Stormcast battle tome is that uh, reforging can be kind of uh, a boon. It could, could be good for you. It could give you kind of cool, inspiring new abilities. It, it could take away your personality to an extent that makes you scary or changes who you are. But the main thing is that it always makes you less human and it always puts you further away from the citizens over whom you're, you're guarding. Uh, so there are reports that like reports, <laughs> <laughs> report, well, BBC breaking news, <laughs> <laughs> reports uh, of, uh, of, uh, Celestine prime minister's question, <laughs> <laughs> uh, reports of unrest on, uh, in the, the new strongholds, uh, mm. because the stormcast themselves, every time they come back and the longer this fight goes on, the less, some of them, this expresses through like a lack of empathy for ordinary humans. They become aloof. Um, and like the celestial vindicators are like this and a couple of the other really, really, uh, brutal storm hosts kind of see themselves as being massively above the people they're protecting. Uh, in other cases, it makes you kind of glow in the dark <laughs> and mortals find that weird. <laughs> so they mistrust you. And it's kind of a combination of those two things that's slowly like pulling, uh, Sigma's plan is unraveling. Mm. very slowly even as all the rest of the necroquake is happening uh, and that's a, a very interesting part of uh the, the kind of sigmar is holding together this coalition of order and his plan is based on a fallacy which is why uh the sacrosanct chamber their secret mission is to fix that really their job is, is partly to go and fight the undead and to fight you know the the, the spirits unleashed by the necroquake but their main secret mission is to just go and read and collect artifacts and 
gain knowledge about soul arts and just anything that Sigmar might be able to use to fix this terrible flaw that's in the kind of DNA of the mm. whole Stormcast project. That part of it feels very, like, um, one of the things that Warhammer storytelling has been good at in the past is that feeling of, like, uh, that representation of the fiction of the fact that, like, plans are always flawed. Like, mm. nothing's ever perfect, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's it can be heroic fiction, but that heroism always has a kind of bite to it, which is what I like about it. That's That's what it gets from... Like it's kind of eighties British comic book roots, mm. right? Like the two thousand AD ness of it, right? Like everything's corrupt and extended. There's a, yeah, everything everything has a, a blemish, mm. and it's not an obvious blemish. Like I'm brooding antihero. Yeah, it's like this is the best plan we had, but it, we weren't ready. Mm. It's it's Magnus breaking the golden throne, trying mm. to do the right thing, right? It's like you know, um, that's the thing. Maybe feels very forty k to me about yeah. this new depth to it is the fact that like oh, it was just if only yeah. that feeling of like if only they'd waited a moment or mm. like been more thorough about checking this or you know what I mean that kind of thing then. yeah or even yeah just had just a, a slightly smaller ego that would allow him to talk to Nagash about this precise problem you know given mm. that Nagash is they should kind of be allies against chaos really they're part of uh the same continuum of life that benefits both of them really yeah this is the, the relationship between Sigmar and Nagash is so cool because they should be part of the same uh, process of back and forth that lets mortals exist between them. Whereas chaos will just destroy everything that they're both yeah. stand for, basically. Uh, which is why order is a faction, um, with so many kind of shades of gray, because it's a marriage convenience always against total destruction. On the one side is total destruction, and on the other side, you, you're gonna start allying with people like Marathi. You're gonna start yeah. allying with, you know. Well, the Deepkin, who like. The Deepkin, who are, you know, deeply kind of, well, you know. Corrupt in their sea own way. weirdos. Yeah. Sea weirdos, yeah. Uh, and I, I can't wait to see, given just how kind of beautifully poised things are, I think like Warhammer is always about being poised in a, a state of unrest mm. so that battles can happen, right? Of course, like so people can, you can make your own stories and tr- trace your course between the kind of carnage, the, the waves of turmoil that are erupted between these various massive god factions. Um, but there are still more gods to be introduced. There's still Slanesh to, to come into play. And yeah. Slanesh will come back. And it's very heavily indicated that mm. Slanesh is coming back. It's coming back for sure. Yeah. And that's going to be really interesting because what will Slanesh stand for now in this, in yeah. this new world? I like, um, they've, I, I, you could feel they like, maybe this is reading too much into it, but the, the new, the, the core book has a lot. Like it has a, a like, it, you know, we're talking about the very big stuff, mm-hmm. but it also has like chunks of text for every faction in the game. And that's not just, you know, the big stuff, Stormcast and Sylvaneth or something like that. But it's like, you want to know what Wanderers are up to? Mm. There's chunks of text for Wanderers. It explains what the Swifthawk agents are yeah. and that kind of thing. Like, yeah. And how all, like, the old world factions kind of fit together, which I really appreciated. Yeah, like, that's really nice. Um, like, Wanderers. So what were previously Wood Elves? You know, you've got some Wanderers in, you know, uh, yeah. that you used in skirmish games and in a few of our games. Like, Wanderers are you know, sort of nomadic elves that basically fled the realm of life as Nurgle was invading and kind of haven't been forgiven by Lariel for it. So they act as sort of like scouts and and, and uh, wayfarers on behalf of the free cities, mm. but kind of don't have a home anywhere anymore because right. they should, you know, they were previously part of the Wood Elf range. They should have a home with the Sylvaneth, but Lariel's never really forgiven them mm. for being frail and running away basically because they they don't have the benefit they don't have the immortality that the sylvaneth do uh where they can just become seeds and and regrow so that sort of that sort of depth is really nice yeah swift swift talk agents are often like communiques now aren't they They, uh, 
they're described that way at least in the Stormcast book, I think. Where yeah. They, they they link the strongholds are actually really well described. I love the way that the strongholds are yeah are defined and and how they're built and how they grow up. And I think a lot of this is in the Stormcast book because they sort of instigate it. But it is a kind of multicultural alliance between the Duardin and the Stormcast at the centre, but also just the Free Peoples and any elves who you know want to join in. And it's a kind of haphazard but really interesting situation scenario that's just great, a great bedrock for new books and stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a great, um, and there's a lot, sometimes this is just through straight up lore or timelines and things. And sometimes it's through little sort of very short bits of fiction, like mm-hmm. sort of like in a sidebar. Yeah. And there's a nice one, uh, in the Slanesh section of the core book. Uh, each of the chaos gods has a little bit of fiction of someone, mostly chopping off someone else's head. <laughs> And the, the Slanesh one is like, it's just this sort of bored woman. Um, you get the impression it might be like a royalty of some kind, but it's sort of bored at life who lives in this city in the realm of shadow, which is safe and protected from the blood reavers outside by sort of, uh, delicate shadow magic. <laughs> and she's just wafting incense out of her window. And it's just a sort of like a pan down as she's sort of bored wafting incense out of the window. And in the streets below her, seekers of Slanesh, so like the mortal followers of Slanesh, are killing everybody. And she can't wait because this will make life interesting again. Right. And she's sort of summoning them with the incense is the kind of uh, thing. Like okay, yeah, and so, um, and it, their description of Slanesh particularly, is, it's going a little bit more, bit more kind of grit now. Like Slanesh has always been the weakest chaos god in some ways in terms of, well, not weakest in terms of iconography. But like the one that needed the most rethinking in terms of like, what is this God about in a world where it's not the eighties anymore? And mm. it's not, a, it's not enough to just have the God of snake boobs. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, where sex has to mean something, an excess has to mean something a little bit more sophisticated than just mm. crab tit demons. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like this idea of like, you know, the other gods don't really account for like just mortal boredom. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just sort of, you know, sort of ennui, you know, in a setting in and you want something to happen and you want excitement and pleasure and, and things from life. You don't want to get a cold and for your guts to fall out and you don't want to conduct some mad nerdy scheme to give yourself loads of power and you don't want to become obsessed with skulls and blood and shouting. You just wish something would happen. You just want, you just want to like hang out and do cool drugs with weirdos. Mm. And that's Slanesh. Basically, that's the point with Slanesh. That seems to be um, some of well in the malign portents book where mm. they have a little paragraph from uh, each of the gods and their reactions to what's going on. And uh, Slanesh's main thing is like really worried that these changes, even though it's going well for chaos generally, it's going to be really boring. Yeah, exactly. Being locked up is really boring. And, you know, well, if Nagash wins, everything will be dead and still. And that that's just too boring to, to be like painfully yeah. boring must I, be fixed i have to say that that description like i really hope that slanesh is getting a big update and i'd love to see what new mortal slanesh would look like but that gave me that first sort of like this is what the fiction's for it gave me that first kind of like brain tickly idea of what hmm. so you know um have you seen have you seen the uh this is maybe a bit off topic but have you seen god which king arthur movie is it the the really cheesy 80s one possibly um there's a, the, i think it's excalibur it's the movie excalibur okay. which is a very very silly film mm. but there's a lot of like having sex on a sword in that film <laughs> right. um in a very sort of like you know chivalric these are the good guys kind of way yeah that's a whole genre yeah of, of a particular 
time in pop fiction. It's kind of soft focus fantasy kind it of thing. Goes into Conan but there's a sequence in that where the Knights of the Round Table ride out into like a, a cherry blossom orchard kind of thing. And they're all just sort of like, <laughs> there's just fucking cherry blossoms everywhere. Hmm. Like Gawain's got cherry blossoms just filling up his helmet. It's just like, as as like the Virgin Suicides, but for, for buff knights. Yeah, indeed. Um, and I just love the kind of Slanesh version of that where you just make everything <laughs> a little bit weirder. Yeah. And it's like, we are the faction that is just like, just like, cherry blossoms everywhere just sort of like bedecked in kind of glorious petals as you ride a snoot beast into the mouth of hell um, <laughs> just anything not to be still and not to be yeah, gray and basically like i really else. want to make that army yeah but, that'd be hilarious. um anyway um but yeah all that stuff is is super good like mm. it's um i think no, this is another fiction thing. I, I, I want to ask you questions about the Stormcast Battle Time, actually, because I haven't read it yet. But um, there's so many cool details you could pick out. The fact that there are wizard bounty hunters now whose job is yes, to go out into the yes. arms and hunt spells. This is the thing. Like the the the, the effect of the whole we've got we've, we've skimmed it really is that it feels like a really cohesive setting now mm. that has a identity for itself in the context of other fantasy worlds. Mm. It is distinct from old world Warhammer, but it also feels like it feels like a slightly more martial take on Planescape for example, like, or, you know, D&D has a big planar element, but it's a little bit unexplored compared to Age of Sigmar, which yeah. has kind of like embraced the idea of a planar multiverse, mm, which sure. the realms really are, yeah. and sort of dug into the physics of that and how it affects trade. And, and there are fantasy settings that do this, but all of this in aggregate makes it feel like a game where you could set a role-playing campaign, yeah. to take it back to pen and paper. Yeah. And I now kind of want to. Yeah. This is, that's a, a, a huge turning point, I think. Yeah, it like, is. That's like a defining moment for a setting when you really feel like there's enough meat there and a kind of shared vision between you and the players that means that you can all engage and, Absolutely, and yeah. do, do new things, but also be on the same... It feels like for pen and paper, like you have to start with a common something that everyone basically like a kind of core like a bedrock on yeah. which everyone kind of can reference and bounce off and ages came up before this this book or before the last year didn't have that like the realm the realms weren't defined enough to matter yeah and because and if the places don't matter and the people in them don't matter the things that happen in those realms therefore also lack uh the weight mm. and, and, and that's changed now like i think it's really telling that uh, when we were talking about our new armies and where we yeah. wanted to go with the new campaign, um, the first thing you did was like open up a book and point it to an island in the realm of uh, metal. metal and said, okay, this is where I actually we sort of retroactively defined where our past year or two of campaigns have happened actually in this map. And now it's in a place. And that means something that does that. Does, yeah. That grounds it in our imag- collective imaginations in a way that really does lend extra weight and make it more, Special. Yeah, I'm in the process of of now like building a map, which is something I was going to do previously, yeah, but cool. I was doing it with no anchor. Mm. Like, you know, it's sort of like just drawing land masses and being like, "Is this right?" And it's like, <laughs> you know, now, but now I can pick somewhere on a map and sort of flesh it out. Yeah, and um, you know, because I totally, I totally respect why it was necessary to block the old world. Mm. Um, I've always been maybe an apologist for that, but uh, and I said it in other contexts that I think. I think the old world became a very good setting for a kind of prescriptive computer strategy game, like Total War Warhammer yeah. towards the end and became a bad setting for a miniatures game because it was too defined. Mm. And every, every sort of fantasy property that exists in that game space, uh, has a relationship with this of some kind. Like D and D I find really interesting because it's so fluid and it's fluidity is sometimes a problem because it can mean things don't really matter, but it means if people get together and really work at giving it meaning, it gives you loads of tools. And that, that makes it a good setting, I mm. think. Um, but old, old Warhammer was 
too rooted in its kind of historical war game kind of roots. It was, you know, it was difficult to find space to tell your own story that wasn't going to be contradicted by something. And therefore opening up to this kind of like planar multiverse thing is a clever idea, a clever way of solving it within a, within a fantasy context. Mm. But if you're not detailed enough, then it just becomes, I remember very, when I first heard about Age of Sigma and I first read about it, the thing that was in my head when I was reading what the realms were was just like Diablo levels. <laughs> right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like just like, oh, the ice level and the mm. fire level and the hell level and the heaven level. Mm. Like, and I thought like, oh, that sounds fun. But I kind of imagined that the game always took place in these just like floating islands in the middle of a sea of whatever, mm. you know, where it didn't matter and it probably get regenerated every time you played. Yeah. And it's so much more than that now. Yeah. And that's almost all established in the core book, isn't it? Like, yeah. I mean, it's been worked out over time with the novels and, and stuff, but in terms of the amount of sort of effort required for someone to go and read all the novels and to be engaged in the whole story, I think the core book just like shortcuts all of that very, very well. Yes. It is a, like, it, it lacks a kind of on the ground focus. It is a world book. Yeah. Right. It yeah. reminds me a lot of RPG source books, which mm. is a different kind of game attached to it. But it does what it does really well. I would say, like, it's it's notable where they have sort of... They've included so much. Like, every faction gets a look in. Mm. Every supported faction, at least, you know. Yeah. And that is a good kind of gesture of confidence that, like, we're going to keep supporting these things. We've given them a place in the law. If you had a high elf army in old Warhammer, here's how they fit. Yeah. But it doesn't go into equal depth. So, like, four of the realms, uh, Akshi, Giran... Chamon and Shayish get like quite a big treatment, big maps, lots of history. Uh, the other four realms, so heavens, beasts, light, light and shadow, yeah. all get a kind of like double page spread treatment. Mm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it gives some space to go. And it's like, it's still f- like, you know, previously realms of light and shadow were like, but back half of a paragraph in one corner of a page. Yeah. Like in terms of detail now, there's a lot more of a sense of what they're like. Mm. Uh, Realm of Light, just full of lasers. It's just fucking full of lasers. Lovely. Um, Realm of Shadow, guess what? Just full of illusions. <laughs> it's the Realm of Joe Blue. Um, and, um, but yeah, like it's not like everything. It's not like the definitive encyclopedia of the universe. It's no. like just the most substantial one to date. Yeah. So, so Malarian. Tyrion, Teclis, and Solanesh are basically, we're looking, and the Greenskins, to be honest, uh, the destruction are going to be presumably the next sort of two years. I think so, yeah. Basically, because, uh, and that's really exciting. Like, that's uh, really exciting. There's a, there's a sort of the slightest hint of an implication of what Tyrion's forces might be, mm. which is, and I'm going to say it in one phrase, Greco-Roman laser elves. Wow. Good phrase. <laughs> Very good phrase. Um, Realm of Light. I guess. Yeah. Um, which I'm very excited by. Mm. Um, and then not so much on what Malirian would be other than just like, basically, Malirian sort of, who was formerly Malekith has basically transformed into Illidan from World of Warcraft. <laughs> and it's, it's a struggle to separate him from <laughs> Illidan from World of Warcraft. Yeah. So I'd like to see how they manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, oh man, it's, 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 it's a super exciting setup everything is yeah yeah as i said it poises the setting just ready to fall ready to kind of collapse yeah. into a different you know sorry how does the because i there's um like uh, i've been listening to some of the interviews they've done and stuff and obviously like all of these books it's also a new generation of battle times starting with the new stormcast stuff mm. it's also designed to kind of work together 
we talked about maybe in a slightly negative light how the books feel like companion pieces to each other. Yeah, yeah. But the Stormcast book is the first kind of like child of these, this overarching law. Yeah. Uh, how, it, how does it fit together? It's basically, it does a job that they've needed to do with the Stormcast Eternals since their inception, since they're, you know, they're initially presented as being the new kind of, uh, you know, as people basically assume they're the, basically the space screens of the new setting in the sense mm. that, they're going to be on the main cover. They're almost always going to be the starter boxes. They're going to get really regular new releases. They're the big kind of main appeal. If you want to be the good guys, here are your good guy paladins who are going to fill that role for you as a new player. Um, what they've struggled with is making them human and dealing with the fact that they uh, don't feel human because they, they went with the kind of like these, uh, the blank masks and uh, it, very deliberate aesthetic decision that was also made them easy to paint to be honest like there are a lot of i think there are a lot, yeah. of, a lot of sensible reasoning went into the way the stormcast were designed but one of the things people really been striving for is just human faces or human any sign of humanity behind those kind of uh cyberman masks mm. and uh this battle tome does that really really well and also <laughs> there's a simultaneous <laughs> so beer crack, crack open beer uh the new model ranges do as well and it feels like to me the Stormcast Battle Tome and the model releases are one of the most kind of coherent releases that GW have done um, since Age of Sigmar was launched, simply in the way that the models back up 100% what the Battle Tome is doing. Mm. Like the fiction, the rules writing, and the model design is all on exactly the same page, right. basically. Uh, and the, the the main mission is summed up by the, the cover of the Stormcast Eternals Battle Tome, which shows... Uh, a it's guy, such a good bit of art. Yeah, a f- astonishing piece of art uh, with a, a shattered shield covered in uh, just, uh, you know, paper. Like, it's quite a, a 40k thing of just having, like, ribbons of paper with, like, squeed yeah. uh, written on it. It's kind of like the religious fanatic. Just to-do list. Uh, yeah, to-do list. <laughs> kill chaos. Uh, B, kill chaos. C, kill bigger chaos. Yeah. D, try not to get reforged too often. Uh, and in the background, there are um, paladins and there's kind of, it's the classic kind of mound of uh, defense, which is also another very good space marine thing that uh, is pretty common. There's a good defensive triangle in the back of that. Top actually. defensive triangle. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's a wizard at the top at the back there, which is the new encantors. Uh, the thing with this is that like, they're, they are like faithful and they are really flawed at the same time. Mm. And they are also on a, a horrible, horrible journey. <laughs> They've been torn out of uh, a terrifying situation where often their villages are being overrun. Often their, their families are being sorted or they're, they're battling for their lives against chaos in, in the age of chaos or even earlier. Uh, and they've been plucked out and they're suddenly just go through this horrendously painful reforging process and they're turned into these kind of one and a half the size time, uh, one and a half times the size they, they were. And each time they die and they feel that pain, they then have the agonizing reforging process again and something inside them breaks a little bit or changes a little bit and then they come back. And a lot of the Stormcast battle tome, uh, in terms of its fluff, um, or well, sorry, the kind of setting and it's, you know, yeah, world building. You fluff, yeah, like, that's what I mean by that. I don't mean that disparagingly. Yeah, I don't either. Like, I just, the reason, the reason I don't like the word fluff is simply because it sounds dismissive. Oh, that's how it's often used online. Yeah. I think that's why it sounds bad. But like, obviously we've talked about it for like an hour, so yeah, we love it. Uh, a lot of it is about how they deal with it and a lot of it's quite sad. So a lot of it is about ritual and ritualistically mm. trying to hang on to elements they think are human or that they think must, that they remember must have been human at some point. 
And so the Celestants are, it makes a point of uh, the fact that the heroes are reforged most often because Stormcast heroes are always at the front and that is how they're designed and that's how they're taught. Yeah. And there's something, um, a really nice, really nice point is that when uh, Sigmar was first briefing the Stormcast and creating them, they were going to war in these kind of, in the giant dome that Malarian built that meant they could die over and over again without being reforged because it was all an illusion, but they would still feel the battle and basically get battle experience from it. Um, and in that context, uh, Sigmar created something called the, the Eighth Order, I think it's called. That is an ominous number to choose. <laughs> yes, it is. And the Eighth Order rule is when uh, an important Stormcast gets reforged, they basically go through officer training again. And they basically go through all of their tactical training. And it's basically they get, they, their mind gets tested and their personality gets tested again. And then they come out the other end. And the, the eighth order also, uh, feeds them intel that they've learned from battles with chaos previously. So it's, right. it's supposed to be like a way of refreshing the kind of intelligence of the officer class in the Stormcast. Uh, and within like a few years of the opening, of the Age of Sigmar, there was so much war and so much battle, and they needed to get people back down so, so fast that Sigmar lifted the eighth rule. And ever since then, Stormcast have been improvising and just desperately going back into battle without being mm. re- without any kind of sense of like, being able to find themselves or learn anything from what's happened. And there's this sense of panic almost on the ground to an extent. They're still brave, they're still trying, but there's this sense that, that they aren't learning necessarily and they're still going wrong and they, they, they know it is and you know they're trying yeah. to quiet it down and that there's that anxiety to the Stormcast Eternals now that that really makes them more human and that, that's more interesting than like straight up corruption I think as a flaw mm. like rather than it being like oh we formed the chaos yeah um, because they introduced that problem early on that it's kind of impossible for a Stormcast to fall to chaos because Sigma would, would refuse to reforge them <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah and in fact they make a point of the fact that the Sacrifice Chamber are terrifying to other Stormcast Eternals who might you know, feel like they're at risk of not being reforged because the sacrosanct are Sigmar's executioners because they right. have the ability to unbind people's souls and destroy them. Like they can point at a Stormcast Eternal. They're the people who put them together and they they can tear them apart in an instant. So right. Stormcast, oh. so Sigmar meets out justice to uh, Stormcast Eternals that have gone wrong with the sacrosanct chamber. Like they're one of the same thing. Uh, and up until this point, that's happened in the reforging chambers. Like the, the sacrosanct have just unbound a soul and sent it out uh, or destroyed it, disintegrated it. But now that that might have to happen on the battlefield because all the sacrosanct are down in the in the realms now. They're, they've moved out of Azir. No one is manning the reforging process. The reforging process is just down to the six smiths who are desperately <laughs> hammering and hammering and trying we've to get all it right. Been there. We've all worked for companies <laughs> where you just... Everyone's on holiday. Ev- everyone can... You, know, you can make do with fewer resources. They're yeah. freelancing them. They're freelancing the freelancing new process. process. They've got budget for it. <laughs> it's all but it's not the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and mistakes, more mistakes get made. Yeah. Uh, and so there's all this kind of tension within the Stormcast Eternals force that there's expressed in this book that hasn't been expressed, I don't think, in even mm. the novels before. Uh, and I think what you see, uh, so much of it is actually in the cover art. Like, you see that he has like rings in his shoulder pad and like scrawlings on his shoulder pad and uh, on his armor and these these kind of these paper kind of yeah, scrawlings, tattoos and tattoos stuff. and all of that is simply ways ritualistic ways of holding on to their humanity as they are reforged over and over again mm. uh, and 
Sometimes it works for some of them, sometimes it doesn't. And often a lot of them slavishly copy their leaders and the weird habits that their leaders adopt. So Lord Celestin, who paints his entire body blue, for example. <laughs> this isn't in the book. That's the thing he I just himself. said. Yeah, he blew himself. Uh, then the yeah. other sort of Eternals who are really terrified. Yeah. They, they might still be completely human, but just natural human paranoia. You know, it's like, oh, I'll paint myself blue just in case. <laughs> Maybe it helps. Maybe it yeah. helps. No one knows. It's like a horrible curse that no yeah. one knows how to undo. And, uh, that's kind of where the Stormcast Eternals are at, like internally at the moment. It's, it's such a cool place to create. I mean, we kind of did this with Tantris in our yeah, campaign. Yeah, he became a bit wrong. He just, he just became a bit wrong and had to be retired gradually. And imagine the anxiety that would cause to all the people that followed Tantris and saw him in his yeah. know, glory days. Now they're seeing what he is now. And that doesn't go away. Like, the Sigma doesn't erase those memories necessarily. But there is, um, like in the... Um, my important short stories there's a, there's a sense they're stripping out wrong bits of the you know that person to try yeah. and, uh, try and turn them into something but what this battle tome reasserts is the fact that they they do stay human but they um they look increasingly terrifying hmm. <laughs> to people who are i like ordinary. it so sort of taps into a fantasy trope of like the um the kind of god being right like mm. you know you have azimar in in D D who are elemental people and mm. um, I've, I've been playing pillars of eternity that in xl rpg uh, uh uh sorry obsidian rpg um and um that has you know people who are sort of touched by a particular god and mm. their heads go all weird which is what it universally means in fantasy <laughs> to be uh, touched by a deity of some kind and i like the fact that that sort of trope has found its way into warhammer age of sigma through the stormcast reforging process so yeah some people just become kind of like brain dead zombie god warriors mm. but some of them become lightning bearded mega men <laughs> yeah and some of them are like they it describes they're walking through the mud and their footprints just steam forever. Right. <laughs> they're just like baked into the earth. And there's something about their kind of, uh, about their personality that is, you know, yeah. they're all infused with godhood, basically. Like Sigmar has infused them all with a portion of his godhood. That is the idea. Uh, and so these effects, they have that in them and it can express itself in strange ways. The way it should be expressed is through strength and determination and having incredibly loud voices in the books, which is actually <laughs> a part of one of their superpowers. I love that. Uh, so they just have these booming battlefield Never voices. work in an office with a Stormcast Eternal. No, I, I, but everyone knows what that's like. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so, the, the, yeah, Stormcast Eternals don't need uh, people to run between units to express the commanders. <laughs> they're very loud. Because they're extremely loud. This is literally a point in the books. So That's why it's so duty vocal. for that one guy to have a trumpet. Yeah, yeah. So if, if their commanders can honk loud enough to, you know, call to a dragon across the other side of a battlefield, imagine how hard a man with a giant trumpet could honk. Imagine what Less that could hard do to now, buildings. Tom. Less hard now. <laughs> yeah, the Duke man has been nerfed a little bit. <laughs> He's been nerfed a little bit. Still great though. And yeah, I, I, I love where the sort of quest tells are at and it feels like they've come we said come of age earlier but it feels like their fiction is, is yeah. working now uh, and it goes great into great depth about how the storm keeps a built and particularly about the sigmaron which is uh their fortress in azir which is unassailable but nonetheless has terrible problems that they, they, <laughs> yeah, they it's uh, really hard to heat <laughs> for one thing they <laughs> uh they <laughs> now the sacrosanct chamber are down in the realms and the reforging process keeps going wrong uh when a reforging goes wrong it creates basically a lightning geist like a lightning spirit that escapes and wreaks havoc on the cities um and what their solution to this was to build uh statues alongside 
all of the main kind of pathways through the city, like the great avenues and, uh, the statues suck in these, uh, these lightning geists, these spirits of broken Stormcast, and they're trapped inside there. And it says that basically on a dark night, if you walk past them, you could hear the screams of the damned <laughs> <laughs> trapped inside the, basically these lamp posts in his ear. <laughs> they're just, just screaming at you. Uh, which is <laughs> what price immortality <laughs> the odd spooky lamppost uh, just screaming lampposts in the dark uh which again just like all these little uh, that's like a half a paragraph that would describe that in this book like just loads of little hooks as that, that give you uh you know a way to humanize your stormcast eternals mm. and, and to make them feel a bit more tortured and less like it, when they first appeared like one of the reasons i think people really disliked them was because they were so kind of blank good guy yeah with nothing behind them except oh they're gold therefore they're good you know what i mean mm. and the other guys are bad and bloody therefore they're you know evil yeah. and that's not enough really for you know to get invested in a story which is what the Realmgate books suffered from a lot as well mm. even though they weren't like you know yeah I, I there can't are blame good the moments for that really they're good moments good heroic moments good battles but it's very hard to get invested in that whole yeah it, it's almost better now by default because like a lot of that story has been respected it's not being like reckoned out of existence mm. like um the character in the very first in gates of azir which is the very first age of sigma novel uh ionis cryptborn who's oh, yeah. the lord relictor um who gets kind of like pulled out of the battle by nagash basically like, oh yeah he doesn't say it's nagash at the time like once upon a time that was a big mystery like what is this force that has kind of pulled him out into this fugue state yeah and it's like he returns to the exact moment he left but like he, he's basically put on trial for nagash for denying a soul this is in the very first book yeah and he's yeah. like and it sort of implied that he was originally from the realm of death and this is when all of that stuff was totally unexplored and now if you reread that bit it all makes complete sense mm. in the new fiction. Like they've done enough to respect the little details that were there. Yeah. Yeah. And then it kind of means something when in that book, um, he gets killed, Iron Scripton, and then comes straight back. Like he, he just, he dies and comes back out of the realm gate because his reforging <laughs> is so quick. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, he's got a sort of like a through line to death. Yeah. Yeah. That, re- yeah. I'd love to see the relics expanded upon that. I think they've kind of deliberately kept them, uh, yeah, it does feel like their job was taken away a little bit by the Sacrosanct Chamber. Definitely. The, the whole point of the relics was that they're on the battlefield to, to usher the souls destroyed in battle back up to his ear to yeah. be reforged. But now that is literally, that's the Sacrosanct's job completely. That's explicit in the new book as well. Mm. Uh, they, the Sacrosanct creates these kind of spiritual bridges between where they are. Uh, so the, the Stormkeeps, for example, one of the reasons why they're so important is that, uh, often they're, they're a gateway back to his ear for souls. So you'll see souls, uh, when a Stormcast Eternal is killed, they basically dissolve into light and shoot off into space to go back to. Yeah. Ear. But they're, what they're actually doing is going back to the nearest Stormkeep and then going up. And there's, there's loads of sacrosanct priests managing that whole process. Right. Huh. And that, that's like a, yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole change. And that makes it more interesting, right? Because it gives you, potential battle objectives and yeah things. Like, and the keeps matter so much now like that they i was saying in like a previous podcast like what does it matter whether this thing falls or not now there are massive stakes for the stormcast if a storm you know if a storm keep falls though the souls dying nearby are in jeopardy unless you know the stormcast around that area have sacrosanct there to help that process or yeah matters. so you know it's just creating stakes and making sure the territory matters in a war game it's very important yeah that's super cool hmm Man, there's loads of good stuff. It's so good. I, I've been thinking lately, news slightly aside, but like, uh, we had a listener write in a while ago now to point out like the link between the Stormcast and the Necrons. Hmm. And that has weirdly only gotten deeper <laughs> because the Necrons were basically, before they were robots, they met a race of star-faring, star-eating, 
um, celestial beings hmm. called the Catan, who took the form sometimes of dragons or kind of like draconic kind of creatures. Hmm. And they convinced them that the way to defeat their enemies was to transfer their souls into metal bodies. And then at the moment of having committed to doing this, they kind of realized their error. And that was the doom that kind of right. doomed the Necron race. Nice. And I kind of love that little echo between fictions. Mm. Like, you know, they've always been, they've been super coy for years about the links between, um, there's a nice nod in the, the core book in terms of the links between Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40k. Because obviously share so much, the realm of chaos is the same in both. Yeah. Um, uh, I like that those, there are these sort of little nods, like there's basically nothing, to say that Dracothian isn't a Catan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and like that extends to sort of just little nods. Like there's a bit where, um, they sort of establish that, um, the formation of the realms themselves, I think it's the malign sorcery, the formation of the realms themselves, like how magic came to be. Every, every race has a different myth for that. And the kind of the, the legends of the collegiate arcane who were kind of like traditional colleges of magic. Mm. Is the one that most closely mirrors the story of the game as it's told, which makes sense. Like human law in game, human myth is the stuff that you're told about in the books, yeah. basically. But the Slan, the Lizardmen, uh, who are another race that have a uh, crossover with 40k, mm. have a different myth, which is more to do with the fact that the universe is in this constant cycle of battles between like the beings that own the stars and the kind of infernal powers of chaos, which then links oh, it yeah. directly back into the big, the very earliest parts of 40k law with mm. the old ones and the slam again. So it's kind of neat that you've got these kinds of like myths that speak to each other across yeah, the two yeah. game systems as well. Yeah, that's, awesome. really, that's really, really nice. That's really nice. So with law discussed, we should talk about rules because they done redone them. Yeah, the four-page rulebook, which is the, sort of the original mission statement of Age of Sigmar, was just, look, we've, we've taken Warhammer, we've put all the rules on four pages. Yeah, which is a, a powerful mission statement when you initially make it. Like. Yes. And obviously, over time, there are discrepancies that require FAQs, and it ends up being a lot more complicated than that. But I think it's a testament to how good the initial ideas were, that they are mostly intact in the second yeah. edition and the, the new core rule book is i don't know 16 18 pages it's 16 pages but a lot of that is pictures as well like it's, it's, it's just demonstrations lot, like, yeah. and stuff. And the original four pages is like bible dense it's, you <laughs> but, know what i mean yeah. like yeah uh, so the, the new one also uh it just kind of it also you know there are a few a few new key different rules that are going to change the game a lot and i think probably the main one after having played a game is command points Mm. huge change the way the game works and uh it has been abused on the tournament scene already to an extent but i fundamentally think it's a really cool shift for the game yeah uh, and essentially what this is is every time you earn a command point and there are ways of earning extra command points through artifacts and through you know, allegiance abilities and things like and that just paying 50 points and for paying them. 50 points for them yeah in your list and um they they stay with you from turn to turn so you can gather them up yeah. and use them in one uh, you know big yeah. big thing which is important uh, and they have a huge number of different uses basically you use them to activate command abilities on war scrolls and so many heroes in the game have command abilities formerly you could only use them if they were your general and you could use them automatically every turn but yeah. ev everyone else in your army who had a command ability could not use theirs uh, because you had to declare them to be your general uh, they've also introduced three new command abilities that any hero can use. And these let you re-roll charges 
they let run roll to guarantee six. a run roll of six and uh third one is inspiring presence which at the start of the battle shock phase you get to just make a unit within range immune to battle shock yeah and the important thing is that people have to be in range of a hero and mm. it, the general has a wider range than other heroes within the army and this has a lot of echoes of Warmaster actually and yeah. Warmaster was all about having uh heroes near units to guarantee things or make things happen and that is kind of how AOS works to an extent now with command points it also creates loads of interesting decisions because you there are certain command points that you uh, certain command abilities that you really want to get off at certain times in different armies it affects different armies differently and it creates just it just creates loads of interesting decisions and i think it's probably my favorite change to the rules yeah. apart from perhaps piling in which is a really minor thing but it yeah, just makes the game you, work better uh, you will see it come up in the battle report mm. that we are about to do that we, we recorded before recording this <laughs> um but yeah, there's lots of tweaks. I think a good theme of the core rules now is like just everything is like a little bit more sensible. Mm. And there are, there are holes in it that can be exploited by the most competitive players. Mm. But I've realized that like that's just not me as a Warhammer player. And like, I think it's not most people. And so rather than trying to min max everything and exploit loopholes, actually everything's gotten a lot more kind of sensible is probably the word I'd use. Like, um, the terrain rules are a really good example of oh, this. Yeah. Fundamentally, yeah. the same six sort of terrain rules apply, but they've been made more consistent with the war scrolls that already existed for terrain, which have been simplified and yeah. made less onerous to use and therefore easier to use. But also little things like the radius on being affected by a terrain ability has basically been universally reduced to an inch which makes sense because an inch is right next to or on top of a terrain piece. Whereas yeah. previously you were managing like three inch bubbles around every terrain piece, which was tricky. And those effects have been reined in. So things are a little bit more consistent now. Like deadly terrain can't just delete a model. It's no. just mortal wounds. Mystical doesn't just freeze a model. A yeah. Unit. In fact, it's just good now. It just gives you a six up in vulnerable. Yeah. 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 Um, That's like, my favorite change. Yeah. There's, there's lots of little things like that that are really good. Um, another really sensible one, there is now a standardized way of capturing an objective. This is excellent. And they are, for me, the most important part is that you tag objectives to capture them rather than have to sit a unit on them and then not use them for the rest of the game. Right, yeah. Uh, which is huge. It's really huge. It, it lets you have more objectives on the board because uh, we discussed before in tournament play, like if you have six objectives on the board and you have to sit on them, I mean, most, a lot of armies just only have about six units in their army. Yeah. And so half your army just has to stand around. And, and that, you know, they standardized that. That's really good. It means yeah. you can move around a lot more. So my favorite example of, um, probably FAQ warranting rulesmanship so far, there's been a lot. <laughs> there has been a lot. It's a new edition and it's been brutal. <laughs> like, I don't, like, I'm not dismissing the experience of competitive players when I say that I don't think it's that important for us to discuss it because mm. there are a lot of Warhammer podcasts so you can find people. Uh, explaining how you can exploit the rules. Yeah, yeah. And I am more interested in the day-to-day experience of people just playing the game with and agreeing on their with their opponent about what's reasonable. Sure. My favorite example of this is there are there are a few new scenarios in match play where you don't just tag an objective and then leave it. Hmm. Um, I've got exactly which one it is. I think it's it's one of the wizard kind of centric ones, and it allows wizards to capture an objective. I think it's called something like arcane conduits or something like the sort of like arcane places of power basically mm. and the rule specifies that if you know it can only be captured by a wizard which is a, to contradict the, the you know an overriding that the core rule about yeah. it just being the number of models within six inches um and if the wizard leaves the objective is neutral again 
hmm. which is to, you know, restore it to the way things used to be. However, I think at a recent tournament, that was ruled that meant if the wizard died, it didn't leave. <laughs> so if but it's wizard, dead. <laughs> it's if gone. It, if it dies, it, left. it still holds the objective. It went to Shayish where Nagash is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ceased to be. <laughs> Doing the choir invisible. No, because leaving and dying are different things. Okay. Yeah. That's the kind of hair that's being yeah, split yeah, on yeah, some yeah, of yeah. this stuff. But yeah. I don't, I'm not really interested in that. Like, it, it, like in principle, like, so this allows for relatively elegant things like it's the number of models within six inches of an objective fine mm. there's no more looking up the war scroll for every single scenario yeah, to yeah, find yeah. out which particular combination of things it is also and then they've done things like on certain scenarios where they want to emphasize a certain type of unit which is often wizards or heroes with artifacts which mm. is a different interesting kind of distinction yeah. um it's like those models count as 20 models which is a really good way of doing it. It's just they have bigger weight rather mm. than they override the rule, which, yeah. 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 Really, really neat. Um, the uh, piling rules are very good. Uh, so a lot of this, like, I think if you don't play the game, it's going to sound like pretty minor stuff, but mm. actually just cleans the game up and just makes it work better and more how you'd expect, you know, armies fighting to actually do. A big example of this is units have to attack in combat. Yeah, which is a huge change from the previous edition, and one of the, the silliest kind of aspects of the game, uh, in a mind's eye sense, where a unit would charge and then not attack and sort of do a dance, a dodgy dance, like a kind of matrix dance to, yeah, uh, and not actually. Uh, now you, you've got to attack. You're in a, a war situation. <laughs> you're fighting for your lives. You're having to break through your under command to charge. So yes, you're going to fight. You're going to fight, uh, which is very good. Uh, the pilot rules are a very elegant change. Where previously you'd have to move towards the nearest model. Now, this is so subtle, but it changes a lot. Um, you have to finish no further away from the nearest model. Yeah. Which basically lets you, it's so much more elegant for just, uh, splaying a large unit around a target. Yeah. Because you can rotate around bases. And this is something that won't be apparent if you haven't really played the game very much, but it's just such a, an obvious tactile change that changes the whole thing. It, it may be that this comes up in a battle report we will embark on very soon, but <laughs> it means that a large unit encountering a unit with a very large base can over successive turns slowly surround that large base. Whereas previously, because you, you know, you, once you're in base to base contact, you're basically you stuck. Yeah. Like you can't, go any closer which uh, this is both more cinematic and also fairer yeah and, and and fits like i've always found that piling in and and that kind of those sort of uh, vagaries of the combat phase are sometimes the hardest things for aos to learn yeah, yeah. because uh, because some things don't make a lot of sense like getting pinned is a kind of difficult thing to get your head around yes but this piling rule is so much closer to how it feels like it should work where yeah. it's like i've been fighting this beast for a couple of turns i should be getting more on top of it mm. right so if i charge my horde into your big monster maybe on the first turn i've only got enough distance to get the front line in but if that fight goes on i'll eventually get the entire unit around it yes and get more attacks every turn mm. that means it just makes things you know it means that combat uh, which could be a combat that's happening turn after turn after turn gets more the dynamics of it change as mm. time goes on and that sort of thing is really good for the game yeah, and it's it's how a war game should work. <laughs> yeah, it's just how it should, it's just how units should interact. Like how they you'd expect them to expect a large unit to wrap around the small unit and to be able to do so relatively freely, especially around the fringes. And what this lets you do is basically, if you're base to base contact with a unit on the edge, you, you you've got a pile in move of three inches, which is a free move at the start of the combat, just before the combat phase, and that lets you slide around 
the base three inches basically yeah and opens up loads of space for other people in the units to get into base-based contact and then once you're all in base-based contact you can all slide around it's, it's a weird thing to describe in audio yeah. but it's just it's a good change it feels like housekeeping but yeah. like sharp yeah. housekeeping yeah it's very good um and like you know i think there are you know there are things that are like so this is the thing like i think as you explore those that rule set and maybe it's worth branching out into the span of that rule set because the whole thing has kind of been expanded like i really would describe this set of books as a toolkit to kind of construct whatever kind of experience you want to have with the models you've collected yes like i can't get away from the fact that you know warhammer was originally a role-playing system Mm. to in conjunction with a set of miniatures and as much as um points and competitive play dominate how people think about the game it is a lot of different things Mm. and there are things I love and I think I'm really looking forward to trying. Like I really want, as our narrative campaign continues, I really want to do an underground battle, Ooh, yeah. you know, rules in the core book for that. In the, in the general's handbook, there are rules for aerial battles, mm. which we're not quite, our armies aren't quite in a good position to do, no. but underground, that sounds super interesting. Like, um, and the core book also has better definitions for what constitutes open play. Um, and includes an open play scenario generator, which works very similarly to the open play card system. It's just basically dice rolls rather than drawing cards, mm. uh, which I love. And that's, you know, basically just play battles with show up with a pile of miniatures, count how many wounds they have, use that to create a battle with your friend. And I think often Warhammer players, particularly hardcore Warhammer players need shaking out of the notion that points at everything and shaking, shaking out of the fact, the idea that competitive players, everything and shown the fact that you can have fun in a lot of different contexts. I love the fact that narrative, even though it's split between the core book and, and the general's handbook, narrative play is now both a kind of philosophy of like, have stories, tell yourself a story where the outcome of one battle affects the outcome of another, mm. which is something that we've done with some sort of match play kind of framework, inf- framework basically. Yeah. Um, and now has a couple of pages of like or lots and lots and lots of really interesting rules for fighting in realms that are, you know, being hit by comets and all sorts of different things. And just sort of like you can pick and choose kind of what fits this scenario. Mm. Like that stuff, you know, there's so much stuff that maybe this is the reason that I uh, don't like the word fluff is it often what it's come to imply in wargaming communities is it's the bit you skip over right. on the way to the bit that are f- to the maths <laughs> to the maths that will win you the next tournament right and that's that's where the warhammer happens and i completely disagree with that mm. and i feel like even you and i who run a narrative campaign we sort of like drift towards the kind of let's look at this as a strategy players kind of yes thing. and actually like no let's go back and look at the fun things mm. that they've added for fun mm. and see if they're fun and some some of them are the fun um and then, yeah, and that's even before you get to narrative pl- match play. And then it, and it recontextualized match play as the kind of like sort of sedate, sober kind of structured thing at the end of a book full of interesting ideas. Yeah. Which is super neat. It's, it's really nice. I do. Uh, it's interesting because we, we've both uh, been tournaments or, and we both sort of play competitively and narratively. Yeah. So I think we've tried to get across both perspectives. Obviously, we're not like power gamers by any stretch, but uh, I think I can, I can kind of... I can understand completely the appeal of digging into the maths and seeing yeah, what's yeah. good and what's not and what does this mean for the game. And that's just, there's a, there's an element, particularly in, you know, dipping into the TGA forums and things like that of just enjoying people's arguments about 
what's in and what's out and the kind of gossip of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, the, yeah. That's what what the competitive game gives you is the gossip. <laughs> the, the kind of meta gossip of what's, you know. Mm, that's the best way of putting it. Yeah. And it's because the, the competitive community takes a holistic view of the entire range in a way that you don't think of at all narratively. And that's just an interesting and different way of thinking about the game. It's not nothing I'd ever want to get sad or argue about really very much. Like there, there are some pretty gross combos happening in tournaments at the moment, but you know, they can get FAQ'd. So I'm, I, yeah, I can't get angry about it. You I know think, what I mean? I think that's the thing is like, I completely agree. And I, I don't, I'm not interested in kind of like planting a flag on either side of that argument. Cause I don't think it should be an argument. No, no. I think the only thing that I perceive is that, I do think that competitive play has a sort of, I've seen this in multiple different contexts, a little bit of a warping effect on the kind of discussion that takes place. Hmm. Not totally, but well, actually I think what it is, is the majority of arguments happen in a competitive context. Hmm. And that for seem that that's sort of whether, as we both know, working in media, like drama has a tendency to draw the eye yeah. more than people happily role playing in sure, the corner sure. does. Yeah. And so it can dominate the tone of a community to an extent in a way, even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't constitute every single forum thread that gets written. Mm. And I think it's always good to remind everybody that, you know, in the, in the words of the theme song that Mike Debenham sung for us, like we paint plastic people and we <laughs> play with them, right? Like, that's the, and, you can't get away from it. <laughs> and that's why I want to, you know, um, there's an overwhelming amount of tools in the, in the toolbox of the AOS second edition mm. book. And I want to, have played with all of them so you know in the battle that you're about to listen to we played a couple of days ago as the time we we're recording this yeah. um we chose for example not to use the realmscape rules and that's something that's interesting to maybe move on to one of the things the core book provides is uh rules for every realm um sp- that are pretty substantial like they can really change the landscape of the game you play mm. Uh, from the realm of fire where you can set fire to terrain pieces which not only means they do damage to people standing on them but also means they block they become a hundred percent line of sight blocking as the flames tower up mm. um or the realm of metal where there's a command ability that can give any unit a six up invulnerable save against mortal wounds like all of this stuff potentially completely changes the fabric of the game you're about to play and one way of looking at that is, oh, these rules are broken. You couldn't possibly use them because they'll completely give an advantage to one side or the other. Mm. The other way of looking at it is, oh, cool. We've got ways of simulating basically anything. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, as the person, as the person who's, I've lost a lot of games of Age of Sigma. <laughs> yeah. Like I kind of want to just throw all that stuff in the ring and, and see what happens, you know, like it becomes a toy box rather than just a sort of system that needs to be solved. Yeah. I think, um, as you got, as we'll come on to with the, with the battle, we, d- I think we decided to keep it relatively simple for this particular fight. Yeah. Because we're still getting used to the new rule set, such as it is. It's not too dissimilar, but there are still differences and new, new scenarios, that kind of thing. Mm. And we've both got new faction specific rules to deal with as well. Very we true, really yeah. touched on that. Like, new it will come up in the battle report. Like, I deal with, uh, Zinch's new summoning mechanics. You've got new systems for the Stormcast in, in some pretty significant ways as well. Yeah. It was, yeah, so I've played an odd couple of battles in the last um, week or so because the Stormcast uh, book has been about to come out. Like, tw- well, when I played um, our game to come, the Stormcast, I didn't, have, <laughs> I didn't have my battle time, so I was just kind of going on a second-hand uh, Scions rule, which was accurate. Um, but other, I think the Paladors might not have been quite right what I did with them. But 
Well, you'll, you'll see. You'll, you'll see, see how I get it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's one aspect of it wrong. Uh, but yeah, I, I played against Chimp as well. And, um, I played with like the new points for the Stormcast, but without the kind of new War Scrolls. There have been quite right. significant changes to War Scrolls for uh, some Stormcast units, which again have been devoted just to making them more sensible and less ridiculously kind of swingy, which is maybe the Stormcast is supposed to be sturdy and consistent. Yeah. In a way that chaos is supposed to be zany and, you know. Well, this maybe acts as a kind of preemptive coda mm. to the discussion. You're probably about to hear at this point. Um, but, um, it's interesting, like, those changes to the Stormcast frame the fact that they've, you know, Stormcast have become a little bit more kind of dependable, mm. sort of, particularly now that they have access to magic. They are a jack of all trades army that is very solid. Yeah. Um, and chaos is sort of, I think increasingly defined as an army where things can swing quite hard because that's appropriate to the fantasy of a chaos force, right? Like mm. it's kind of there in the name. Like this is the army that is fickle on the battlefield, whereas the forces of order maybe deal a kind of, uh, that's been more kind of uh, consolidated in the rules now, that sense that you will, you can rely on your troops to achieve a certain thing. Yeah. Whereas my dudes, fucking, fuck who those. knows <laughs> yeah, exactly. what that care spawn's going to look like. Indeed. Giant melted Kilroy Silk. <laughs> now I have to convert a giant melted Kilroy Silk. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Our games keep getting better and better. Yeah. Um, maybe that's the, the note that we hand over to ourselves in the past on. Yeah. It's been a, a very timey wimey podcast. I feel like this one, uh, but I feel like I, I feel glad to have dug back into the law i feel more yeah. at home with uh tasty tasty law than i do with raw stuff really. yeah i'm really excited about it like i'm excited that so you can expect that um if you missed our kind of zinch versus stormcast narrative battle reports that they will return to the podcast now i think with the vengeance in force yeah for sure as um <clears throat> as we embark on a new adventure um of magical nonsense versus big gold men who don't care <laughs> <laughs> um and um yeah, and that's a that's a that's exciting for us. I, I, and obviously, we will talk about other other miniatures things sometimes. But well, I mean, X Wing two point is in September, and Kill Team, and Adeptus Titanicus. God, there's so much. I know it's Tom. so good and so expensive, but so good as well. But for now, we should uh, let you enjoy a full ninety minutes. Imagine of uh, Tom and I playing and talking through our first collision. <laughs> In uh, AOS 2.0, which sees, I should stress, a very exciting moment for both of us, not only the end of Star Trek Watch, but the end of Zangor Watch. <gasps> Could it be? <laughs> yes. It is. It is. Okay, let's talk about our first game of second edition Age of Sigmar. So first, this is the first game of our new campaign. Indeed, it is. So, uh, so you know, uh, listeners, we're recording this immediately after playing said game, and actually before recording the rest of the podcast. So we might have some sort of weird reverse hot take kind of <laughs> phenomena occur. We might change our minds about everything. Yeah, indeed. But I think this allows us to make the the freshest possible take on a pretty complicated game that we just played. Cause yeah. We're learning a lot of new stuff hmm. with. Some pretty familiar forces. Yeah, so we had um, we're using the AOS two point rule set, obviously, and also using some of the rules from the new Stormcast book, which I don't have yet, but we've just sort of yeah. you know. Adapted, well, we might so. have by the time we record the rest of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So for takes on that particular battle tome, 
looked at earlier in the podcast. Yeah, but, uh, which you've already heard. <laughs> Basically, we've summoned some chronomantic cogs and yeah. slowed down time to allow us to deliver simultaneous takes across multiple different yeah, enjoy this. fate streams. This is very Mortal Realms. I think it is. this is very AOST. Um, so... And I, I've been really looking forward to this game. Like, yeah, yeah. Leaning in really hard. Like, I think when we when we come to record the main pod this month, I'll talk about sprinting to get thirty Zangor done. Yeah. For this game, big change to my army, but also because um, because of the changes to Zinch specifically, like pretty big changes. Some, some many of which we felt in this game. Some of which probably didn't even feel to their full extent. Yeah, not yet. From points changes to everything else to summoning, particularly. Mm kind of a new army like it's a very it was a very different army to the one I'd normally build yeah and you were bringing lots of new stuff as well it's true I bought a Star Drake the first time Star Drake watches over yeah and Zangor watches over in the wild. it's actually kind of appropriate actually yeah they they're kind of the counters to each other as well hilariously in the game to yeah. an extent um, well one's very much counters to the other we'll find but <laughs> <laughs> uh, they are pointed quite differently uh, they they are awesome centrepiece you know a, a, a massive unit could be a great centrepiece as much yeah. as a Star Trek could be a great centrepiece I think that's the cool thing that I realised looking at both of our armies on the tabletop yeah I think this was like the, the best looking pair of armies we've ever yeah, fielded yeah it looked awesome even though both of our armies were smaller than they yeah. have been I smaller think. but lots more detail actually. smaller for you because of um, lots of people in space or in the wilderness and an expensive Star Trek yeah. taking up 580 points 580 points yeah he's, he's oh pricey. wow he's pricey oh wow Mm. And and smaller for me because of points races across the board basically. Mm. So, yeah. um, so we chose to. So yeah, this is this game is sort of two things at once. It's obviously <laughs> our first game of AOS two point and a bit of a trial run for mm. the rules. Um, uh, not your first game of AOS two, I should no. stress, but our in the first game, but also the first game in a new campaign. Mm. Um, and so maybe just to, to touch off the kind of law stuff straight away and a few other things. Um, this is sort of taking place like our previous campaign took place sort of during the Realm Gate Wars mm. and as with the rest of the fiction of Age of Sigmar we kind of moved things forward decades if not hundreds of years yeah yeah. Um, a civilization has risen up or like at least cities have risen up in the place that Tom liberated at the end of the last successful major yeah. victory for the Stormcast which is now a place on one of the amazing maps in the new yeah world. we've, we've uh, basically I, I've chosen um, a particular island in on the map of Shaman the Realm of Metal mm. in in the core book to be a campaign setting and I'm going to draw a map of that place and kind of and, and add more detail to it mm. and if someone writes a book about it and contradicts everything fine but you know for now I'm going to kind of claim that as ours um Cities have risen, and crucially, cities have risen um, in a place where a, a lord of change was blown up. And that's often sometimes a bad idea. Yeah, that energy doesn't always dissipate, because stay there for thousands of years, siege is patient. Indeed, and and that energy has now sort of led to the foundation of cults within the city. Mm. Um, my new kind of zinch army is called the Cult of the Radiant Transposition, which is like, um, that sort of, again, trying to maintain the musical motif somewhat, but move it into the sort of Zinch Arcanite mm. mould rather than the demon thing that I was doing previously. It makes it more sense for the fact, you know, be citizens of these places being corrupted, like ordinary yeah. humans and, you know, other ordinary citizens. And these tribes of Zangor finally arriving, finally arriving after six months of painting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to take up a different position from the army. And uh, I guess this, you know, for the law hunters of Azir, mm. your army, this means... They've, they've housekeeping <laughs> yeah pretty pretty much they've kind of gone into you know bastion mode after the frenetic invasions of the Realm Gate Wars and, and the, the the frantic 
you know, uh, coming to terms with Zinch uh, in our previous campaign, I think they've uh, they've bolstered, reinforced, but they're very much, you know, they're there to garrison, they're there to hold the fort, and mm. rather than actually push into new territory right now, those things may change over time, of course. Yeah, but we've also, like, because we've played games since, like, at the tournament and things, when mm. we got matched against each other, yeah. we've got a sort of, um, like, both of our armies have sort of been clashing in different realms and yeah. in different sort of wildernesses. Like, I sort of see the realm of metal as the place where things will always come back to, mm. but we, you know, they've encountered each other in different environments. Different realms, different places, and and also the Law Hunters have increasingly reaching into other realms to draw the forces from. So actually, like, my general and, you know, some of the other new uh, units I've been playing with probably come from Haish, the realm of light, where they've been hunting for artifacts there. Yeah. Uh, and there's still, there's a couple of heroes I've got which I haven't used yet who are, have been patrolling the realm of death. So the, it's more about, the, the, the Lord Hunters are about an ethos that can bind in different storm hosts you know you pick it's almost like a special forces thing you pick and choose from different places yeah anyone who's able to hunt artifacts and resist their kind of lure uh, and the chaos mm. the chaotic influence you're you're allowed in and this has kind of come to a head around stuff that we did um well initially just to tie into role models rollout which was mm. um the miniature monthly community on discord's first <coughs> live you know kind of gathering yeah um, which provide them a little bit of story. I kind of suggested that they might be seeking these instruments of Zakra, which are the literally, I mean, the joke is that they're literally musical instruments, mm-hmm. but the kind of magic remnants, the artifacts left over from that civilization that the Stormcast kind of put to an end. Yeah. Basically at the end of our first campaign. Mm-hmm. And those artifacts were claimed by one side or another and granted to, and I asked, you know, uh, the community members to like decide whether or not they would then subsequently grant those artifacts to Tom or to me. Mm. And uh, Tom won overwhelmingly. <laughs> yes. Force of um, and so actually making use of those new narrative rules in the new general's handbook, mm. um, we kind of translated this into the, the rule, I think it's called gathering of power, yeah. which basically allowed you to pick an extra artifact. Mm. But in the game we ended up playing, that's actually a really big deal. Yeah. And now thinking about it, that's actually like, mm. uh, but that's really cool. So if you, if you were one of the people who, uh, committed your magical flutes um, from beyond time and space to Tom's cause. Yeah, this was very handy. Uh, and you should imagine uh, a kind of end of Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark type scene where your artifacts were ferried by a Lord Veriton and uh, a load of kind of lowly stormcast into a, a vast hall in Nazir where these things are kept and locked down and overseen by the scholars and the wizards and the uh, you know the new chamber of stormcast. Um, yeah, and so this is obviously the, the the first game of a new campaign as well. Yep. Um, but we also did choose to use it to kind of try, a try out one of the new match play scenarios. Mm. Uh, I guess we'll meander from match play scenarios to narrative play scenarios and kind of just sort of see what's the awesome. Yeah. Uh, I really want to awesome. try underground as well. Oh yeah, that'd be that'd be cool. Um, that'd be interesting. Um, given there's such a toolbox of stuff, I really want to try that. Yeah. Um, also. Um, but also, we chose not to use Realmscape rules for this particular game. Mm. So it could have been taking... Uh, I, I sort of assume this game, this match was taking place sort of... Well, we'll, we'll get to when we talk about the scenario, but this this battle could have taken place anywhere. Yeah. But we chose to not use Realmscape rules simply because it's an extra layer of complexity on the game that we've yeah. already... We'll certainly go into those, though, in future. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be really fun. So, uh, yeah, so the, let's talk about Relocation Orb, because <laughs> it's the silliest... New match play scenario it's, by like some yeah. distance. It has a terrifying diagram full of which maps the route of an of objective that moves around the board at the end of each battle round, and it zigzags between points of the, of the battlefield. Um, and it just kind of is very unpredictable, and because it's a one point a one objective scenario, it means it's 
by its very nature, it's going to be a mashup. It's going to be like two armies going straight to a point and trying yeah. To so it's like sort of diagonal deployment <laughs> in that you both yeah. have like a corner of the board set up in. Yeah, I don't think either of us realised how close together that actually sure. pushed you. Yeah, and then and so to clarify, if you haven't seen the the, the scroll for this, use one objective that starts in the middle of the board, and mm. we said oh, on a piece of terrain, like. It's a relocation orb is like apparently like a specific kind of artifact in the mortal realms. I like yep. to think that our armies are fighting over something kind of essential to both of their plans. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're clashing again. But it's also a clash of new forces and new Lord Celestin. Yeah. Tantris is on holiday. He's on the bench. He's <laughs> on, you know, um, compassionate leave. Yeah. We have to think of a name for... Yeah, I, I'll come up with one. Dragon French. I think. And uh, yeah, so the, the new Lord Celestin on Dracoff is, is the new brains of the operation. Tantris will come back every now and then. He can still hit a thing very hard. And uh, he's not, you know, Strakoth probably will do most of the thinking for him, but uh, he he's still factoring the story somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's him. We've also got um, the general of my army wasn't actually the Lord Celestin who was there to basically fight and hold the line. My general was uh, a Lord Aquila and uh, a band of vanguard hunters who um, mm. uh, are almost like a separate force. As I said in the previous pod, Swordcast Army is like a series of different forces now that you can sort of mix and match into one cohesive army. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so for me, it was also the, the first outing for the, the Zangor. Um, but also, um, so there's one objective in the middle of the board, just to kind of finish off exactly how it works. Yes. One objective in the middle of the board. At the end of the round, you roll a dice, and on a one or a th- one to three, it moves in one direction, mm. one foot, and on a uh, four to six, it moves in the other direction a foot. And if that roll is a one or a six, you then roll again and it moves again. So you yes. have a subjective that kind of ping-pongs around the board. Mm. Um, and one of the really important things about the scenario that's really interesting is um, capturing that objective is based on, obviously, the standardised rules now, uh, which I imagine we will have already spoken about. <laughs> yes. It's a good change. <laughs> it's a good change. Um, but if you if you hold it at the end of your turn and you went first in this battle round mm. you get a single point for it if you hold it at the end of your turn and you went second in this battle round you get three points for it mm. which is huge and it adds this uh, as we'll talk about it adds this huge element of strategy to when you choose to take or give away the yeah. first turn of a round interesting scenario yeah really interesting actually given how silly it seems like mm. everyone's chasing the ball yeah yeah also uh, we should stress uh, wizards and heroes carrying artifacts count as 20 models mm. when it comes to capturing it, which is a big deal for both of us, actually. Yeah, definitely. Especially with the extra artifacts gifted to me by the community. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's actually one of the reasons those artifacts were, were so important. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. like, because I'm neck deep in wizards. Mm. As yeah. you'd expect. I'm ne- neck deep in treasure. <laughs> we're, just, we're just glorified treasure hunters. Yeah. With a, a good cause. And uh, my army's just nerds. Mm. Just, just nerds who are nerds. bullied by big gold men <laughs> 300 years ago. Yeah, nice. And they're out for revenge. Um, so let's talk about... Let's talk about quickly about army composition before we get into the, exactly what happened. What went into the selection of your... So we should say, we ended up with 2,060-point armies. Yes. Due to a minor mess-up, but it actually worked out. Yeah, it was fine. I um, took... A lot, of, a lot of it was about throwing down as much new stuff as I could that I had painted, so... The Paladors have finally been painted, so they got their first outing and did quite well. Um, and the Lord Aquila is the general. Uh, he's kind of uh, riding a you know similar perfect normal horse. Um, I also took the Star Drake, of course, uh, uh, Lord Castellan, which is basically an auto take if you're taking a Star Drake or probably you know Dracov cavalry. Um, I also took the battle line because the Aquila was general. I could take two squads of Vanguard Hunters battle line and a unit of Judicators. Um, and I think that was it. Uh, oh, I had to do in Cantor, of course. One of the new Stormcast Wizards from the Sacrosanct Chamber. Yeah. 
who I'd faced hastily faced up, and also to round out the points, I took an end this spell, uh, which was the Maelstrom. Mm. Only 20 points. Kind of just a weird, yeah, very cheap clue. The Maelstrom is the one that eat, sort of absorbs spell energy, then blows up when it's eaten too much. Yes, any spells that are successfully cast within 18 inches that you can even roll to unbind, and if it does so, it eats it and gains the token and eventually blows up. Mm. Pretty cool. So I took uh, Lord of Change as general. Yep. Um, I just sort of, like, as time goes on, as they add more stuff to each army, Lord of Change will probably go out of the list completely because mm. it's so expensive now. Yeah. And I want to uh, be able to include more stuff. But uh, um, I um, Lord of Change plus uh, 30 Zangor, 480 points, two blocks of 10 pink horrors, yep. 200 points each. Um which is actually, in terms of general and battle line, like, that's almost the entire army, like, yeah. those things. And then I took uh, the Ogro Thaumaturge, because really good, Sorry. really good before, and now people have realised that they're really good, which is sort of annoying, I feel like, yeah, so, yeah. like the Thaumaturge hipster. You were there first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you knew um, before it was cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Gaunt Summoner, mm-hmm. always really solid, and a, uh, a Herald on foot, just a regular Herald. Yeah. Um which left me enough points to take in terms of endless spells, because I wanted to make sure we saw a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bellwind Vortex, the Chronomantic Cogs, the Ether Void Pendulum, the Geminids, yep. and the Life Swarm. Mm-hmm. Not all of which I ended up casting in the game, but loads. I ended up adding the Life Swarm because we ended up with, when we ended up with that sort of like 2060 point weirdness yeah. thing, because uh, it just of a miscounting, basically. Yeah. Um, I just added the Life Swarm. Nice. Because Zinch doesn't have access to healing mm. normally, so it's actually potentially really big. It's good for Zinch, good for um, Well, Zinch has access to healing, but it's in the form of turning other people into your dudes. <laughs> Which is kind of cool. Yeah, but I don't have that yet because I don't have the, the shaman painted. Yeah. Um, and that is, um, it felt really different for me, at least at first, because that's a lot fewer units than I'm used to fielding. Mm. Like, like it's one of them is enormous, right? So, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. And also there's the footprint. Like, yeah, I, mean, I mean, I've been working problem. on this angle for so long. And they've had them sat in front of me for so long that I didn't really realise what that footprint actually means on the yeah, on a game. Yeah, like, one inch apart on the in a formation. There, they're really really large. It's yeah, really yeah. Great. And it's like, um, so yeah. Let's talk about how we set up. Mm. Um, I I won the roll off. In fact, I think I won most of these roll offs in this game. Um, and so I, I picked a corner that had arcane train and damn train in it. Yeah, which are the two best things for me. Yeah, because uh, Siege doesn't have lots of access to re rolls, and plus one to cast is super important for Siege. So. Yeah, nice. Um, like, uh, damn terrain, the new damn terrain where you take D3 mortal wounds to, actually it's the same, I think, mm. um, to reroll one to hit. It's the same, yeah. Uh, I think it might have used to be more plus one to hit. Maybe so. Um, but nonetheless, really, useful. really solid for a big unit as well. Really solid. Um, so my setup was basically, um, screening like hell, mm. like mega, just making sure there was nowhere for your either retributors or vanguard to get behind me. Yep. And then um, making sure that the Zangor were in a position to both benefit from the dam terrain and get to the centre of the board as fast as possible. Mm. How about you? Uh, so I put the Retributors in space in the way, as we've already described this podcast, I'm sure, um, the signs of the Storm ability now works, means that you can choose to come down whenever you like at the first three turns. So obviously nine inches away from the enemy. Um, also put one of the five, unit of five Vanguard Hunters in pursuit, uh, which lets them come on the board edge. And... Um, I kind of I put the adjudicators kind of forwards, but in a building, so they had a cover save, and they would just be kind of covering everything. Yeah. Else. Also, it, because it was the oculum, and because mm. um, those those uh, sort of named buildings come with specific terrain traits as standard. They're defined now. Yeah. It's a mystical terrain, which now gives you a six up invulnerable. Yeah. Which is actually not a bad, really good shout. Like, really good. Right. Uh, then I 
for the second unit of Vanguard Hunters, uh, the, the orb starts in the centre of the board and wants some sort of reach to try and get into the centre, even with, with a kind of relatively flimsy unit. So I actually deployed them as a screen in front of the Star Drake. And by the Star Drake, I put uh, the uh, ooh, Lord Castellant, Castellant who's yeah. his, his, his lovely friend who shines a light on him that makes him really, really hard to kill. Um, and then kind of round the edge, I put the Palladors and the Aquila together with the Encanter as a kind of unit that, again, could quickly reach the point if they wanted to, depending on how the turn order went. Uh, and that was pretty much it, really. A lot of, lot of stuff in the sky, but yeah. more stuff on the board than I needed to put, put down, really. And because of um, because of um, my smaller army footprint that I'm used to, I ended up finishing playing first, which yeah. gave me choice over the first turn. Mm. And it's actually a tough choice because um, a few things went through my head. One was that, obviously, with things like the spell portal... Hmm. Hopefully I mentioned that I had the spell portal and the cogs and the bailwind. I actually have more ways than I previously did to sort of extend the range of multiple spells, particularly given how close we were at the start. Hmm. And there was actually quite a lot of potential um, if I'd taken the first turn to direct a lot of mortal wounds at the Lord Aquila and the Palladors. Like, I don't think the Star Trek would have been in range. No. But if I'd gotten the um, spell portal off, I could have kind of done that. Yeah. But um, because of that rule about... Um, for two reasons. One was the rule about capturing second means you get a lot more points for it. Mm-hmm. But also, kind of, thinking back to kind of first edition logic, that I kind of want you to walk in range mm. of a bunch of things. Mm. Um, I gave you the first turn. Yes. Yeah. Um, which was... Um, well, my first note for turn one, because I appreciate it might feel like ages ago, even yeah. though it was only a couple of hours ago, <laughs> uh, was Chicken's Leave. Yeah, so the I use a command point to use the general's ability to uh, basically vanish off the board and then come back next turn. That basically puts them in pursuit. I think this might this was the new book, the Aquila and the and Paladors. the Bangor Paladors, uh, who are the kind of horse riders. <laughs> they, I think, in the new book, that happens instantly rather than come on the next turn. Uh, so I'm kind of confused about that. But I just played it the way I played it last Thursday when. Um, of course, the war scroll then, uh, where you come, you go off, and then you come back next turn. Uh, so they vanished off. They just sort of like said, "Nope, let's be flexible and see how the battle unfolds." And mm. then, uh, especially with a moving objective, I wanted loads of stuff that could, yeah, come on flexibly to <clears throat> adapt. And it gives me loads of stuff to think about as yes, well. Like yeah. I think a trend of this game is that I played very cautiously, mm. and there's a reason for that. Mm. It's because you always had stuff that can arrive, it could just pop from on the flank, even with stuff coming down. Yeah. Um, so the first. Just out of a kind of sense of wanting to see what the new what would happen, what the new stuff, all our new stuff did, I just brought the retributors down on the point where they were. Um, so I just strung them out, screened off that that point, just to claim one point. I sort of like you know sort of come out and move. I was certain they'd get rinsed, um, but uh, it would kind of bring your army within range for me to start counterattacking. You know, if you come up and you you know you have to engage them in combat to kill them. Really, you can't just rely on Wilson Roosters you know, no. spell them off really they're just too tough um, so I wanted to put them there and just force the army to come into them so that maybe the Star Drake counter-attack maybe I could stop pull your formation out of shape so I could start bringing on the hunters bring back the Paladors into places where they could attack the um, either the objective or the uh, greatest demon yeah so yeah that was pretty much my first turn it's just uh, forming a line with the Retributors there's a line of um, Vanguard Hunters behind them and behind them again the Star Drake who was just there to breathe on stuff and <laughs> basically counter charge at some point and get into get stuck in yeah so you scored that one point for that first turn yeah, yeah. I'll do it the first turn 
then um, so obviously I was second and so I see when I was because I've been afraid of your retributors since the very first <laughs> game of Age of Sigmar yeah, I ever played quite good yeah like they've always been good yeah. like obviously the I'm actually we will have talked about it by now what a weird thing to say but yes. the um, Star Soul Maces have changed like some things have changed but like I remember when I first started playing Age of Sigmar mm. Star Soul Maces were the thing for me that felt like bullshit <laughs> yeah because yeah. Um, you know I imagine we'll get on to talking about Mortal Wounds and magic in general, despite the pre- like prevalence of new line of sight blocking things mm. or Mortal Wound saves. Oh, we should actually we should talk about your artifacts before we move on. Actually. Good point, actually. Um, but, but I was going to say, despite those things, Mortal Wounds is still the least interactive element of Age of Sigmar. Mm. And that old uh, retributor Mortal Wound gun, basically, yeah. was horrifying the first time I encountered it. Mm-hmm. So when I started sort of theory crafting how many angles I wanted and realizing with horror that it would mean spending six months painting 30 of them. Right. The thing I was constantly kind of test rolling to kind of make sure the maths was right mm. was 30 Zangor versus 20 Retributors. Yeah. And Zangor, actually, if they go first, come out on top of that. It gets 20. It gets 20. Oh, well. Yeah. Like, uh, in terms of, like, it's not, they're not going to kill them all. Yeah, yeah. But they'll do so much damage mm. that they'll... Yeah. Because against the footprint of 20 will also mean more of them get into contact, which mm. is... Anyway, that's, that's by the by. Yeah, yeah. But, like... Um, <laughs> But yeah, anyway, let's talk about your artifacts quickly, because uh, including yes. the thing your the community got for you. Yeah, precisely. Uh, so I can't quite remember the names of them, but um, the main artifacts I took on the general is an incredible artifact. Lens of refraction. I think that's it's something, something like that. Um, incredible artifact from the realm of light, uh, where the general and any unit within six inches—that's within, not only within gets to negate D three mortal wounds of wizard damage. Spell damage. You didn't put it in your general, though. You put it on Star Drake. I put up the. Oh, sorry. Yes, you're right. Yeah. I put up the Star Drake, who was not a general. Yeah, the Aquilus general. Uh, so yeah, he he had that artifact. So he has this bubble where this is huge. This is absolutely massively important in the game. It's going to be full of mortal wound spells, and it's one of the slight disappointments for me about the new endless spells is they're so mortal wound centric, and there aren't like weirder ones that are a bit more kind of subversive, yeah. a bit more movement based, and a bit more kind of playing into the skirmish nature of Age of Sigmar and the kind of objective nature of it. Mm. Uh, objective driven nature of it um, but yes you're going to have to have mortal wound saves you're going to have to have mortal wound s- stuff in your army that you stuff that can counter that because there's so many mortal wounds in the game now um, so yeah he had that it's very good um, and also on the castellant I put um, I think the curious of reflection or something uh, which is a 5 plus save against mortal wounds and on if you're also 6 he gets to deflect it onto an enemy within 6 inches which is also pretty great yeah mm. Um, both of those things are huge because so much of my damage comes from yeah, moves, particularly from spells yeah. and things like the the D3 negation is you know as the game went on we realised <coughs> that things like um, a boundless mutation where it's D3 mortal wounds followed by the chance to cons- do consecutive mm. single mortal wounds is always completely negated because mm. that one will always be cancelled um, that's a big you know those are those are big includes I, th- I agree with you that the the downside is they feel like almost like Auto includes. For, yeah, for my army especially, mm. is that uh, mortal wounds are particularly good against stormcast because there are so few of them. So a small number of mortal wounds has a massive impact on the number of men yeah. you have on the uh, women on that you have on the battlefield, which then massively reduces your damage return and stuff like that. So it, it affects stormcast especially. So I wouldn't be worried if it's like I have six hundred dryads. Bring on the mortal wounds. I don't care. You know, um, horde armies. You know, they take yeah. it very differently. But stormcast specifically are very very vulnerable to it. Yeah, which is an interesting part of our matchup, right? Mm. Like, it's, yeah. it's why you just need to keep adding Lord Encounters when we get there. <laughs> yep. uh, Night Encounters, sorry. Um, 
So yeah, so um, my first term was kind of interesting because my <coughs> spell phase was actually super cold. Mm. Like, um, like obviously, kind of going off. Basically, I managed to get the the Gaunt Summoner up on a Bellwind Vortex, the new wholesome non nonsense yeah. Bellwind Vortex. That it's not good, but well pointed. Good, but kind of gave him a job for the entire game, but yeah. felt kind of worth the points, but not overpowered. Yeah. Like, good, good change. Good change yeah. as well. Um, one downside is that like and this is something we hit really quickly, is um, my hero phase was already, like... I feel like two things happened to my game in this game. One is that... So my hero phase was always very complicated. Yeah. And with the prevalence of new magic as the as the magic army, mm-hmm. that means that, like, I have a lot more decisions to make. Mm. Which is partly, like, there's a lot more spells to cast, and, like, everyone can always cast a spell. And I finally realized that, like, heralds get to cast an extra spell if they cast on more than a nine, yep. which is already the ca- always the case. That's not, like, a 2.0 change that we're complaining about. Yeah. It's just... I stopped not realizing that that was the case, basically. Right. I read my own war scroll and realized that I'd been leaving that on the table the entire time. Yeah, it's pretty good. So, um, but also one of the reasons I was paying attention to that is because of fate points, mm. which is how each summons now, uh, which is super important. Like, now I want to be... Ca- like, previously, if I had a unit at the back that had nothing in range, um, there's no point rolling to cast. Yeah. Um, but now there is, because if I successfully cast, even though there's no target for the spell... That's another point in the fate points bank yep. for summoning. So I am kind of methodically making sure I'm being as efficient as possible because if I'm not, then I'm not gaining the benefit of all those extra points I'm being charged for all of my units, mm. basically. Yeah, yeah. Like I need to be earning those summoning points and, and getting that stuff moving mm. because there's sort of subtleties to that system. Like you can't summon at all unless you have five fate points in the bank. Right. So even with the splitting rule, mm. if you haven't been casting spells, switch splitting doesn't work okay. at all. You, which is you bank the blue horror points for future use, but they don't count. But you can't use them until you got have faith. Back. Like so, if you have, uh, I imagine we were spoken about this already. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. let's say if, even if I have twenty blue horror points in the bank, if I don't have five fate points, which again I can't access them. Sure. So like, there's loads of like, mm. you know, I need to be doing this, but it's a very much like I'm suddenly playing a resource management game yeah. by myself mm. basically but that's kind of on top of the resource management that you're doing with uh, Destiny Dice yes so exactly you're, you're kind of managing several resource and also command points like you, there's all these kind of pools of resource that you're yeah doing. right like it's, it's an interesting thing for Zinch now that like because I have the Zinch Dice mm. um, and I, I previously only ever used the gold ones the Zinch Dice set comes with nine gold dice and nine blue dice Yeah, and I previously used the gold dice with Destiny Dice and that was it mm. now I use the nine gold dice as my Destiny Dice and yeah, I use yeah. the blue dice to count fate points and I have another set of dice to count command points. And all of those things do crossover similar things. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, it's gratifying strategically. Like yeah. there's an interesting thing you're manipulating there because if you, you know, as, as, you know, not to steer your head, but like pink horrors can just vanish like pinky mm. your fingers, right? Yeah. Like I don't think there's a, 200 point unit in the game that can potentially die faster yeah. short of certain heroes really odd unit like no. I mean they've always been a weird unit but now they're, they're super, super weird, weird. <laughs> like you're paying 200 points potentially for 50 wounds which yeah. is incredible yeah, yeah. except that might just not happen yeah depending on how everything pans yeah out. like it's very zinchy it's like you mm. know you've got all these weird elements anyway skip ahead I was really excited that you put the pa- the the right, down and I know you, you did that because it was a cinematic decision <laughs> yeah. and I respect that and I think I made some cinematic decisions later on sure sure. Uh, I think that's a good phrase for it yeah. like yeah. playing you just want to see the real. you just want to see everyone crash into each other and just see what happens because it's is. like um, we 
uh, we, while we were playing, we described your retributors as the wharf of your army. <laughs> right. They've been, as in uh, Next Generation, Star Trek Next Generation, they've been there from the beginning. Hmm. They are the toughest thing in your army, traditionally. They're the thing I'm most afraid of. And therefore, they are the barometer for the new villain, if yes. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, on my turn, like, my, my magic was actually really cold. Like, I did a few more all-ins here and there, but, like, Geminids failed to cast. Mm. Like, lots of things that could have been quite important just failed to come off. I think I about something. You also, yeah, they, um, I did a Firestorm yeah. on a nine or something yeah. with all the change. Double uh, six. Double six on yeah. the encounter for the hero unbind. Yeah. Um, also knowing, like, so also we made a mistake, uh, which may have affected the game, so it's worth going into. So basically, I didn't realize that, I knew you couldn't try and cast the same Ender spell twice. <laughs> I didn't realize that the same wizard couldn't try and cast two different Ender spells. Yeah. Which is really important and a big balancing thing. So basically, my, um, Herald managed to cast the Cogs mm. on a 10 or something. And then because of the Herald rule, that means they can try and cast another spell. So I tried to get cast the Portal near mm. the Lord of Change. So the Lord of Change could... Uh, and you used your Night Encanters once per bodies. game. It just... I, don't, I, I imagine it just like picking up a spirit flask and just yeah. shattering it on the ground and then just like all the kind of magical energy on the battlefield just suddenly goes cold and that thing just... Fritters out. I, I imagine it differently. I imagine yeah. they're looking to the heavens and going, "Dad." And Sigma, <laughs> Sigma just goes, "No, <laughs> okay, no." Sigma uh, says, "No." Uh, yeah. Either way, just uh, once per game, you just, it's a brilliant, brilliant ability just to be able to shut down something. Mm. Some bullshit that's about to particularly happen. for a tempo and combo yeah. dependent army like Siege for sure. Um, because so basically, what happened is you use that to unbind the portal. Yeah. Um, when we realized that that wasn't a legal spellcasting attempt, mm. we kind of refunded your once per game unbind, mm. but it ended up not affecting things for other reasons. Yes. There was murder. Yes. Uh, murder is often involved. Um, so yeah. And then, but after quite a cold kind of very cold, uh, magic phase, very cold, uh, combat phase, I then charged and it's very new for me. Yeah. Charged with 30. 30 beastmen. Oh, very fast beastmen as well. Very fast beastmen because they can run and charge. Yeah. And didn't have to like use any anything to kind of get them into that charge. No, they're just really independently good. And they are a, a lawnmower, mm. basically. Mm. Um, in a single round of combat, the Zangor killed every single retributor. Yeah, there was, there was no combat phase to retributors. Like, all of them died. Either from... Like, even, uh, we should mention the amazing yeah. big horror shooting that managed to take out the... Oh, uh, the amazing brimstone horror shooting. Brimstone oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. this is rerun the clock a bit. So, um, using new summoning rules, hmm. Ogre Thaumaturge casts a, a fire blast at the um, at the retributors. Hmm. It does a single mortal wound out of D6, yes. which is very disappointing. Yes. But because summoning is now free, that mortal wound creates a single brimstone horror Mm. Which is then sat behind the retributors. Just, yeah, between between them and the Vanguard Hunters. Yeah, kind of pinning both units, basically. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to make sure they were both engaged. Yeah. Um, and then in the shooting phase, pink horror shooting does basically nothing. Yeah. Uh, but a few models had taken uh, mortal wounds. Mm. And you had, I think, mistakenly assigned some of those mortal wounds to the Prime. Yeah, that's stupid of me. To the retributor Prime. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Brimstone Horror, the single Brimstone Horror. Mm. Well, I guess pair, but you know what I mean? He was, just, he was only in range, though, wasn't he? Yeah. To actually do this attack. Um Fly flings two five up four up shooting attacks, mm. a five up five up sorry shooting attacks at the retributors and inexplicably gets a single wound through yep. and kills the retributor prime. Yeah, which is headshot. 
the most ignominious death I can imagine. It's amazing. Yeah, it was really amazing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the Zangos just ripped those. And I was getting stuff wrong. I wasn't actually rolling enough attacks. Mm. Like, it was... They, they get a lot of attacks. Because they get a lot of attacks from being 30. Like, that is a unit that when they're, when they're on fire at the start of the game, they are really scary. Yeah. Like... Yeah. They're really, really good. The Retributors always suffered from having a 4 plus save, whereas a lot of kind of heroes and other... Uh, yeah. Units in the Stormcast army have a three plus, and Stormcast are their saves pretty much. That's that's really what makes them. Mm, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Work as a, an elite army is that um, when you encounter stuff with rend, and when you encounter mortal wounds, that is when they they just flake apart. The crucial thing for me is like those angle great weapons, mm. which have minus one rend and two damage. Yeah, really that's nice. just a little tweak. Really like nice. I don't have very much access to rend as each, like yeah. almost none. But the slightest bit of rend has a huge effect on Stormcast. Yeah, sure. and two damage as well. Yeah, Suddenly, really. That's, nice. that's, that's one Stormcast dead for every one of those. Not retributors, but like... Well, it's true, yeah, yeah. So retributors are three wounds, but even then, just cumulatively, with having... Was it like five attacks? From I just think like, they did like 16 damage. Yeah, like, yeah. it's huge. It's, it's the really, really um, effective. And like, yeah, and that was sort of... Uh, obviously a cool moment for me, because I was having just spent six months painting them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fuck, I, was sort of them to get, I was expecting them to die immediately, yeah. so it was a nice for them to get that moment. But yeah. like... Yeah. Um, yeah, really interesting sort of, like, the maths of that, like, the way that the Zango just sort of over, overburden your mm. ability to rely on that save. Mm. I think maybe for stuff that we're probably talking about, um, it's really interesting. Like, I think you're completely right. I think, I think Stormcast are defined by their saves mm. and things that can trigger off their saves. Yeah. I think Siege is defined by their ability to battle mortal wounds. Mm-hmm. And the fact that those systems that talk to each other is the reason that our battles are sometimes a bit weird. Yeah. Like, That's literally, it's that, right? Yeah. Like, it's the fact that, like, if every army boils down to, like, you know, you could say that an Iron Jaws army boils down to speed mm. in some ways. It's like it's in your face straight away. That talks to the fact that you have a save, even if you don't want to be relying on it in turn one. Yeah. But for me, it's like when my spells go right, mm. people go space. Yeah, that's it. There's no kind of... The other person isn't involved in <laughs> yeah. what's going on there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, so yeah, so that was um, basically like just a, a big strong charge, and that that meant that I held the central objective at the end of my turn because mm-hmm. Zangle has gotten on top of it and killed all the retributors, yeah. which meant three points for me, putting me in the lead. And then the ball was very silly because of your incredible rolls. It was very good. Uh, so if you roll, like, is it a one or a six? It yeah. keeps on moving. So yeah, it's one to three and four to six to determine the direction. Yeah, and then on a one or a six, you roll again. Yeah, so I rolled. I rolled four one. consecutive ones, yeah, I think. I, I, yeah, it was like, like a six. one, one, six, six, or something like that. It basically it did a lap of the board, <laughs> then went back to where it started, and then moved again back to the first again. place it had gone to. Yes, exactly. So it did, <laughs> it did a massive like spiraling loop, the loop of the battlefield, and then ended up in a place that's pretty useful for me to be honest. It was yeah. Uh, Although bizarrely, it ended up basically where your Aquila <laughs> yeah. and Paladors had, had been, been standing. standing sure. <laughs> they had just not done. What, when they came back on, they, they came, came back in the same place. It's <laughs> yeah. like yeah, they went off to get a McDonald's. They came back because they saw the objective was there. Yeah. Um, however, I, I won the roll off. Yes. And then this time I took the double time. Yeah, yeah. And this, this which was the right decision, and it led, but it led to I had very hot roll offs in this game actually. And this led to, I think, a very passive hour for you, and I appreciate. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of process, and I'm, I, do, I don't dislike what Zinch does in terms of. I think it's balanced and it's correct as how the army should be doing stuff. Like it should be amazing at magic. It should be just everything should be casting spells all the time, even if it's at nothing, which is literally how the Zinch army works now, just to get those points. Um, but it just it was lit, almost literally an hour of 
nothing for the stalk has to do which is going yeah. to be an interesting kind of feel thing to analyze about this game yeah and so the reason i took it was because because there were no and this is interesting like previously double turn of course you take it yeah right in this game it was a decision and that's to the credit of second edition. yeah yeah um like i knew that if i took the double turn i could only get one point for the objective however i'm already ahead hmm. and i've just wiped out like 400 odd points of your stuff yeah, right like yeah. i have tempo Time to press it, right? For sure. This was like a press the advantage kind of mm-hmm. moment. Um, um, but you're right. Like, it, it was a sort of, obviously, a long period. Particularly because Zangor have lots of different weapons, lots of attacks. Mm. Resolving Zangor in combat takes a while, which means that now I have two lengthy phases. Mm. I've, I've gone from having one long hero phase, and it's everything kind of, else is just kind of nonsense. It's kind of three lengthy phases, because actually almost everything in your army can shoot to some extent, whether it's with Although this, or whether it's with, with points arrows. changes, yeah. I don't have anywhere near as much shooting as yeah. I used to. Okay. Like, it was like four units, and it's always just like a bunch of four-ups. Four but that's rolls. still like 20 dice for yeah, the horrors. It's still like... And again, it's, an, it's, it's, not, not, it's not an interactive... Phase. It's not an interactive phase really shooting. You roll some saves, but that's it really. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas combat phases feel, uh, combat phase is brilliant. I love the combat phase in AOS. I love the you go, I go picking activations. Yeah. It's my favorite thing about the whole game actually. Like, it, apart from movement. I'm glad to be more involved in it. Actually. Yeah. It's, it's, the, those big decisions about whether you activate this crucial unit here and choose to take damage somewhere else is, is really cool. And actually, yeah, it, it makes me want to play something like, um, uh, what's the World War 2 game? Bot action. Uh, yeah, bot action, because all the phases are like that bot yeah, action. Yeah, so, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, in a sense, getting double turned by Zinch is just make a cup of tea, basically. <laughs> uh, or fetch a beer, as I did. Yeah, indeed. So, um, basically, with my double turn, um, again, like, actually, the, the effect of that... Um, so, I got a bunch of stuff done with yeah. spells. Like, uh, I got the Geminids out mm-hmm. and moved them, so they passed across the Vanguard Hunters and your Lord... In- Knight in Cantor. Yeah. Um, Geminids do... Uh, each of the Geminids is one from the normal shadow and one from the normal light. Each of them does D3 mortal wounds. The light one reduces your hit uh, to hit by one. And the uh, shadow one reduces your attacks by one. Mm. They're amazing. They're, they're so really good. good. Yeah, they're really, um, really good. But also terrifying to have them thrown back against you, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, like, if, if they had been in play, like, if I hadn't failed to cast them mm. on the first turn, I probably wouldn't have given you... Wouldn't have taken that double time. So you didn't want to come back on your Zangor, right? Yeah, because back on the Zangor, suddenly I'm really boned. Yeah. Like, we should stress, the Zangor managed to wipe out the Retributors, despite the fact that under the new sign of the Storm rules, mm. when a Stormcast unit comes down from space, it's minus one to hit. Right. And the Shocking only reason cool. that worked mm. is because I'd used the damn terrain in my own territory to give myself rerolls. Yeah, yeah. Like, that was two systems fighting each other and just about coming out in the wash. But I, I, I like that. Yeah. That, to me, that's like a really, that's an exciting interaction between that creates a scene the odds yeah it creates a scene it, you can see the storm gas coming down the crackling of the electricity they're kind of there's a haze of you know signal right energy around them that's making it hard for enemies to push through but uh, the Zangor in a very chaos move have just like fed one of their number to this edifice of evil and then they've all become empowered by the sort of strange magical energies and then those two things clash in this environment and that creates a scene that creates a yeah, really, yeah. really cool and there's like fight. this really nice moment of like the because those that moment of deployment for the retributors is previously been such a hero move mm. they're hitting an enemy that doesn't care mm. that will just sort of like like fight through and I love the fact that Zangor look bestial but they're super smart yeah, like yeah. they're really like very good fighters like they're not mm. fucking about like they they are high you know they can go toe to toe with the stormcast mm. it's like a real nice moment of oh shit yeah like, like and also the retribution is just like they're, they're quite plodding and dutiful that's always their thing so they're just like 
they know they're gonna. They know death is about to happen, but they're just like hoping for the chance to strike back when it never comes because they just get like overwhelmed and you know rushed down by you know uh, strange magical bolts coming from a tiny green fucking <laughs> fireman <laughs> and a uh, tiny green uh, fireman. <laughs> a tiny green fire- <laughs> fireman's back. He's back, uh, and yeah, it's just. You can imagine them just getting overwhelmed by all this kind of mortal wound, this magical fire coming onto them, this crazy charge by these crazed yeah. warriors. Well, like the one of the the Zangor um, ability that gives them the extra attack mm. per nine models in the unit is called yeah. Anarchy and Maker. Oh, yeah, like, it's kind of be supposed to how they fight. But yeah, like that's it's right. Just nonsense. It's sort of rampage, basically. Yeah, yeah that's that's so awesome. And I I love combat. I love charges and clashing and yeah, in the game. Yeah. And that, that, it's so awesome. Me too. To I see that. that. Yeah, like and that's something you've lacked a lot in your army. I think apart from your Ogroid Thelmaters, who's done very well. In the yeah, past. who in this game basically just so incredible. Like uh, not to skip ahead too much, but like. He whiffed every single one of his attacks in well. the entire game. Yeah, his main u- main use was to charge alongside the Zangor and give them plus one to wound yeah. by being an Arcanite hero. That was basically it. Which was, yeah. Um, but basically, yeah. So in my second turn, of oh, that double turn, I did make it... So I got the portal up. Mm. I got the Geminids out. I got the... You know, the cogs were in play. Like, I had, like, the full Zinch, Zincharama. Mm. And I actually didn't do a lot with it. Right. Like, so, sort of, in terms of my cinematic decision-making, I've played against Star Trek three times now. Right. Um, two Twice in tournaments. Once in Cardiff at Blackout and again at London GT. Mm. Every single time I've played against a Star Trek, I've killed it in the first or second round of the game with yeah. mortal wounds. Yeah. Because that's its weakness. Just can't do it. The very first time I played against a Star Trek, it had the Celestine buff on it. Mm. And I, I threw all of my screamers at it. Oh, yeah. Screamers get a bonus. Screamers get a bonus against monsters. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was clever. Mm. And then I realized that, oh shit, hitting it heals it. Yeah. Like... Like like all, all, all but well. like eight percent of the time, basically. Yeah, yeah. And mortal wounds are bouncing back, and I realised it's such a mistake that the next turn the Lord of Change just lit it up. Yeah. And I sort of learned that lesson that day. Mm-hmm. But because we were playing, because it was like, you know, because it was this was not a tournament game. This was like a, a for fun game. As soon as I had like the spell portal set up, mm-hmm. the ability to pour mortal wounds onto the Star Drake, I decided that I wasn't going to mm-hmm. because, like. I didn't want it. Like, I wanted to see what it could do. I wanted to see how that kind of balanced out. But also, actually, strategically, and partly, you know, partly for the cinematic moment of it, like, I want to see the Star Trek crash into exactly. the jungle, yeah. right? Yeah, like, yeah. I don't want it just to vanish. Because mm. um, my spells are really swingy, but if they swing hard against you for one turn, it's Deleted, gone. It, yeah. Right. Mm. Um, so I went for the Celestine, sorry, the Castellan instead. Mm. Um, and that's partly a story-driven reason, right? Like, that Castellan used to be my Chaos Sorcerer Lord. Mm. Like, yeah. That Lord of Change really hates him. Mm. And also, if I can kill him, then suddenly the combat we're about to have becomes very, very different. Yeah. Like, it goes from being, like, this re-rolling ones healing on saves mm. thing. Yeah, the buff actually does last till the next hero phase. So it does, but, it, you know, later in the game... It it's a, a huge, it's yeah. huge. It's a big part of why this Ardrake is so tough, is yeah. that Castellan buff, for sure. Yeah, so I thought, well, maybe pouring the Mortal Wounds here. It'll lead to a more interesting game, Yeah, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, so I went for that. And actually didn't get either. Like the the Castellan survived. I think it took three mortal wounds from all the spells because yeah, because of those great five up mortal yeah. wounds. It's partly because he was within the um, he was within six inches of the Star Drake, and yeah. he had the item that nullified D three wounds from any spell. Uh, but also, you know, those, he gets that extra save of five plus. You know, this is the stuff that Stormcast armies are just going to have to take from the Mind Sorceries book because it it just 
patches over one of the biggest weaknesses in the army. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and that, that was huge. That, that's the only reason the Castellan survived that turn, really, because I think he... Yeah, I mean, he shouldn't. Like, I mean, if a Lord of Change died. casts all of its spells at you, <laughs> yeah. and you're a six-wound hero, yeah. you should die. Yeah. Like, a 16-wound monster, mm-hmm. it's a toss-up. But, uh, you know... Yeah, a six-wound uh, mighty... Well, a six-wound hero taking three wounds from a Lord of Change... Is pretty good. He is pretty good. It's pretty good. Like, yeah, and that was, that was interesting. And that sort of changed the, the rhythm a bit, because mm-hmm. I was like... Because actually, I was in sort of like... Because I felt like I was ahead. I didn't want to, like, be brutal. You know what I mean? Uh, you, could I just, you could have finished off the Star Drake that turn. Probably. It, it's very dicey. Very dicey. Like, very bear dicey. in mind, like... Every time F- Firestorm is the spell that you roll nine dice and every six you do three mortal wounds. Yeah, yeah, I cast it three times today, and every time it did zero mortal wounds. Mm. So mm. when it can do twenty-seven, like it's so yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, so all over the place. And I think you're right. Well, we'll get to it. Mm. Basically, but at the end of my second turn, that meant that um, um, I could sort of um, kind of move up the um, the Zangor. Mm. The Zangor then. Um, Ripped apart the vanguard that you've been using to screen. Yeah. Down to one incredibly durable prime. Somehow. Yeah. Managed to roll a lot of saves of four plus. But also the, the Zangor Twist Bray, the kind of leader of the Zangor unit, mm. sort of soloed the Knight in Cantor. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, just totally to death. Killed her. Down. Yeah. Killing her, like, that was that was an attack of opportunity. It's because she was there, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. But also that removed your unbind potential. Yeah, and that, that was... That one thing just took me out that whole phase of the game, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Which is... And something to bear in mind, I think, for future games. Yeah, I think maybe we will have already mentioned this in our future takes that will be in the past when we listen <laughs> yeah, to this. Yeah. But like, wizards feel a bit mandatory now. Yeah, I think that's Absolutely. that's a both. You know, I'm okay with that if that's the kind of game that AOS is supposed to be. Mm. Right, like this is a high fantasy game where magic is everywhere and you have no way of interacting with it. Mm. Like, I've been thinking about it. Like, um. I've been fleshing out my prospective thousand point and the two thousand point corn army. Mm. Even my corn army has between five and seven unbinds with no wizards. Okay, like every you know what I mean. You've like, got to have it in your. You army. can have it like and. Yeah. But I, you know, for better or worse, I feel like it's mandatory. Mm. And losing that one source of unbinds was a big deal for you. Okay? Yeah, and I think I think Kansas is like one hundred twenty points, something like that. Yeah, and they their ability to automatically unbind a thing is brilliant. You know, mm. it's, it's really huge they're really good for the points so they like, are I, I think they're 120 they might be 160 or something I, think, I yeah. I, I don't know I'd have to look at the war score they're probably 160 given what they can do um, but having a spellcaster that has that infinite range once a game underbind like you want to take two or three um, just to exist in this meta it feels like we've not yet to see how the meta evolved but it's going to be a lot of spells it's going to be a lot yeah I mean if you if you go up against like Croak <laughs> yeah. like someone really scary yeah, yeah. Like, Lord of Change is scary but like yeah, you know, the, the terrifying death is going to get FAQ'd pretty soon based on what's been happening in recent, you know, yeah, competitive yeah. games. Uh, but yes, you're right. You, you, you've got to shut down, for example, the mirrors that lets each just park a hero at the back and just throw spells through into stuff. Like, you've just got to delete that. Yeah. And without that, you're out of the game. That part of the game. Yeah. Completely. And you, you're just not past that. Anymore. You either need to be able to unbind it or have an answer for it. Yeah. Like, you, like, I think that's good. I think you should be forced to make, be making decisions. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I mean, I guess we've spoken about it in the past that, like, my, the hero pose has always felt uninteractive. Mm. And I think one way of making it more interactive is to say that, like, this stuff is just a force to be reckoned with in the game. And mm. so you either have to account for it in the hero phase with other wizards, unbinds, artifacts, whatever format takes. Yeah. Or you need, Units that can deal with it in a different place. Mm. So whether that's 
sniper artillery that's taking out key wizards, mm. or it's vanguard coming in from table edges yeah. to assassinate wizards. Like, I feel like um, Simveil on that front, screening did a lot for me in this game, because mm. it meant that none of my kind of backfield wizards were ever under threat from... Yeah, I mean, that's a symptom of the fact I brought the Rapture Preachers down on turn yeah, one. true. Because if you break out, like... They're coming down to fuck up a wizard immediately at some point. Like, they're yeah. probably coming up to you all to change, so you're gonna have to screen that. That puts someone else at risk. And, uh, or they come down on a point somewhere more convenient when your force has been thinned out. They're just, a, they're a difficult unit to deploy because they are on large bases and there are a ton It would have been a very different game if I'd had to try and wheel the Zangor around mm. to deal with them rather than just right, yeah. remove the Zangor in a straight line, basically. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me very much of like our very first game, mm. which has actually ended up with replace the Zangle with my Retributors. Remember, they just kind of kept on making crazy charge rolls and going from one unit yeah, to the next. Yeah, it was basically like a hoover. They ploughed <laughs> a, a, a diagonal across Which the Which is the reason I was so afraid of them. Yeah, that's, and that's literally the reverse has happened at the start of our new campaign. So the start, the first game of our new campaign, you're, you've got your kind of massive hoover unit that's gone diagonally across the board and just sort of like taken loads of shit mm. out. So there's kind of a cool reversal there between the two armies. Yeah, although uh, to be fair, we're only at the beginning of your second turn now. That is true. And this is where things change a little bit in terms of how the Zangor do. Yeah. So this was the turn where the uh, the uh, Lord Aquila and the Paladors returned. They came back to exactly where they were. <laughs> they just came back to exactly where they deployed. Uh, which Actually, made, a little uh, bit further away, I think. Yeah, they, of, they'd have to be within six Oh, two. sorry, one really crucial thing. So at the end of my second movement phase, mm. I'd got 13 fate points. Mm. So rather than... Oh, yes. I could either hold on to... I could either hold on for 20 to get Pink Horrors, but I decided to spend 12 of them to get a Herald on disc, mm. which I summoned onto the objective, thinking that that would be something you couldn't ignore. Yeah. Because it's a 16-inch movement wizard yeah. that can basically take the objective wherever it goes. For sure. So that was uh, a fun to... use of the new summoning mechanic. Yeah. Like, to deal with yeah. this dude. Also, it got me the, the objective. Yeah, thing. yeah. Uh, so it was my turn after the double turn. Um, slightly beleaguered, but I still had like, enough stuff to move around and actually take objectives with, which is a great thing yeah. about Age of Sigmar. You could take a beating and you can still be in the game. And uh, this is important not to get too discouraged because there's always a way back normally, um, either through tanks or through movement. So we brought the Paddles and the Aquila back on uh, to threaten that Shaman on that point. Herald. Sorry, Herald. And... This is also the turn that the Star Drake charged. Oh, so the Star Drake actually finally got to charge the... Uh, he got to do his whole suite of moves. He got to do his roiling breath attack on the on the Zangor unit, and that is um, that attack basically he breathes thunderstorm onto the unit and electrocutes them. And you roll a dice every member of the unit and every six is a mortal wound. I think it did like four mortal wounds. And it did six the first time, six, which is slightly six. above average because it's thirty models, right? So yeah, that's yeah. one in five. Yeah. So it's yeah, slightly but, above. But you know that that was good. You know, um, he also charged in and used his attack profile. And is he's an, he's a weird model because he has some incredible abilities. He can use cavernous jaws, and he if he's undamaged, he gets to do this to three models in the unit. And you pick the models in the unit that you want to remove. And then you roll, and if you roll above their wounds characteristic, they're, they're swallowed whole, uh, which is amazing. Like it's it's brilliant, and I completely misused it in this game. <laughs> yeah, uh, because. It, it, but the way in which you misused it is really interesting. Yeah. So there are new rules in AOS 2.0 where if at the end of a whole round uh, a unit 
isn't in cohesion, i.e. every member of the unit isn't within one inch of the other, the rest of the um, unit, you have to pick one half the unit or the other and it runs away. So the unit has to stay in cohesion one way or the other. And so the Star Drake can use this to eat a couple of dudes and ruin their cohesion, then if they can't get back in cohesion through piling in or any other, other movement, they are, they're gone for the game. So if you've got like a unit that just wraps around him, in a single file pretty much around him just imagine him you know uh, they're all side by side just daisy chained around him yeah but not in a perfect ring but else it wouldn't work yeah um, yeah then you can eat one or two of them all three of them and then you, you can delete you can delete half a unit with that which is potentially very very powerful and on paper it looks brilliant but actually in in practice because of the new and by the way excellent piling rules uh, units can pile in in their turn to adapt to that and fill yeah. in the holes. And, and the only way to play for that is to make sure you attack after the pile. Correct. Yeah, for sure. In which case, you're taking all all those angle hits. I shouldn't have been afraid of taking those angle hits. It turns out <laughs> I should not have been afraid of that at all. No, because the Star Drake is fucking invincible. Like in combat, it's almost broken how tough he is. Like it's yeah. insane. I mean, like if so, this is this is the thing I find really interesting because like. I think one of the reasons AOS can handle having so many rules added to it, Ramscape rules and things like that, mm. all of this all of this stuff that's been added, right? One of the reasons I think it can handle it is because it is a game of broken feeling things crashing into each other. And massive extremes on both yeah, sides. Yeah, like, I have massive extreme magic. And the Zangle rolled over ten retributors, mm. my former boogeyman. They rolled over the, the Vanguard, and then they hit the Star Drake. And when they hit the Star Drake, I started to lament the fact that the new second edition rules state that you have to attack. Yeah. Because as, when I started to attack the Star Drake, um, I would maybe do some wounds at my attacks, but because of this, because of the healing on natural saves of six mm-hmm. and uh, reflected mortal wounds on re-rolled successful saves, yeah. <coughs> I was on average per combat phase doing zero damage to the Star Drake and losing a Zangor every time I tried to attack it. Yeah. That's fucking nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, you know, you account you, you account for like, oh I won't do very much damage. Mm. Not I'm paying I'm invincible. I'm I'm pay- not not just invincible. Yeah. Like I'm losing a Zangor to achieve nothing mm. every time I attack it. Which is like it was terrifying. Yeah. Like, so the fact that you couldn't split the unit in half and wipe them out with that, but you might be able to is mm. like yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's threatening. He's also got a tail wipe that does just D three multiple wounds automatically. Um, then he's his attack profile, to be honest, isn't amazing. But if it was, it'd be crazy given how mm. tough he is. I think it's he's a different unit to what I thought he'd be like. I thought he would be more aggressive, but actually, he, it's he, an anvil. It's like an anvil is is the thing that just stays there and doesn't move unless you multiple wound it off, or it fights something with Ren three. Because it is going to take run three to get through the Castellant save, really, like yeah. odds wise, which is extremely rare. Like, like, yeah, it's hard to find that type of weapon in the game. It's, there is a um, it's an expensive a, unit, but very good. There's a Shimon artifact that gives a, a single weapon run three. Yeah, I think there might be a Shyish one as well. There's like a couple from a couple yeah. of rounds, but yeah, which is which is very very good. I would put that on a Knight Zephyros with six attacks. Um, yeah, so the Star Trek finally got to. I finally got, finally got to see what it did. Yeah, and what it does is hold the fucking line. Yeah, it just holds the line, which is an awesome thing for the Sanderson. And also, just 
man, the, 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 I've got problems with the posing of the model, but it's cool. It looks awesome when it's surrounded so by a horde. The only problem with the posing is it's four legs, yeah, really. And when it's surrounded by a horde, you can't really see them anymore. And then and it just like, looks like honestly, that looked fucking rad. Yeah, it looked awesome, like we yeah. both spent ages on those models. Yeah, yeah. Like Star, this was literally Star Trek Watch versus Zangor Watch. Yeah, to the exact fine and clashing and. Like they and they st- they basically were glued to each other for the rest of the game because mm. the Zangor cannot shift the Star Drake and there are shitloads of Zangor. Yeah, so yeah. like um and that looked great. Mm. And it was such a cool moment that like this new you know, to go back to the narrative side of it for a moment, like this new Lord Celestin maybe brought in to replace Tantris because he's gone a bit wrong. Mm. Like just like sees the heart of Z- Tantris's army essentially mm. get kind of annihilated by this sea of new weirdos yeah. only to then just hold the line by himself mm. like fundamentally by himself mm. is, is a really cool heroic moment yeah that's, that was really that was really really cool he's really good he's quite um, in game terms he's quite unwieldy because of the size of his base it's enormous yeah it's huge yeah it's twice the size of the Lord of Change base which is surprising. yeah it's enormous and which makes him like as an objective capture unit not terribly practical because chances are if there are any kind of vague enemies in the area Actually, getting them to move and position with that that size of base is is going to be difficult, which is something we encountered. And actually, we encountered in this turn because of how I positioned various and the spells, mm. including like uh, Ether Void Pendulum that didn't really do very much, but just sort of emerged through a portal at a weird angle and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, it meant that endless spells um, blocked off loads of options for the Star Trek. Yeah, because its base is so big that mm. the fact that there was just fucking weird magic everywhere meant they couldn't. He was locked into a particular approach. Yeah. Not a bad approach, but... Yeah. He couldn't... For example, like, he, he, he can fly, so he can fly over the unit and then charge, and that gives him loads of mobility, actually, in theory. But when, you know, you, you have to fit a giant base between lots of other bases, yeah. suddenly he couldn't do stuff. Well, you were talking about trying to fly over a 30-strong unit of 32-wheel bases, which yeah. is, like, really deep unit, mm. and lots of other spells kind of dotted around. became suddenly a lot more difficult. Yeah. He's got, I think, a 12-inch move, and then a charge on top of that and, can, and being able to fly in the game is really strong which is why the new night haunts I think are going to be really good because uh, they can all fly yeah it's one of the reasons um, Legion of Asgore Chaos Dwarves mm. are good now have you seen their ability no mm. uh, if you can fly you just take more wounds when you fly because the sky on top of them is on fire oh shit that's right, that's crazy yeah interesting it's like if you fly above a certain speed if you fly slowly you're fine <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting it's one of the actually rules like it's one of the right. rules for actually but they have it all the time ah, because that's, that's where they're from that's really cool yeah uh, yeah so I wanted to fly that the charge I wanted to do was to fly around the corner of the Zangor and position my Star Drake close to the objective where it, where it had moved the good thing about a large base is that you could tag an objective with it if you really want to and he's worth 20 people because he has the, the artifact couldn't do that, so I had to just go directly into them and yeah. you know, just grind it out. That was lucky for me. Like, that was accidental, mm. but it sort of shows what's possible with yeah. Yeah. positioning under spells and that kind of thing. Yeah, so endless spells are interesting because it's not quite clear in the rules like whether the bases exist or not, you know what I mean? They're, they're not like a unit where you can't go within three inches and then charge, but mm. they definitely are a factor. And it, I don't think it's the They same are way. a unit, that's the thing. Like, okay. They're just not... Can't be charged the same thing. So can you not go within three inches? No, you can go within three inches of them. It's just that, like, they have to be able to complete a move in order to do a move. Mm. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's, there's going to be some interesting edge cases, I think, where that movement and that blocking off. Um, I mean, to be honest, for example, there there is another spell that is just a bunch of chains that slow people down, and you put deploy three of them within a certain range of each other, 
and I think that would be really legit after yeah. coming into this, having this problem with the Star Drake. If you're pushing around a, a big individual hero, or you're pushing around a big unit of stuff, they're going to be a nightmare. Yeah, to those changes are fundamental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and also um, the uh, the new kind of wall of lights that you can do at yeah. the end of the spells that would be really useful against Angor as well. It's, it, I, I think the really cool thing is that like there feels like there's like lots of tools in the toolbox to mm. deal with stuff that feels quote unquote kind of busted by itself if that mm. makes sense it's yeah. like rather than just like okay there's nothing I can do about this it's like well, oh well these artifacts or this spell could potentially yeah you, you can sort of you can fight it to an extent to card game terminology you can tech for stuff which right. is kind of interesting like, yeah but I mean the nature of the game is that with 2000 points you can't tech for everything so it's like where no, do you leave true. the holes in your army yeah. which is how it should be cause yeah and particularly the beginning of the campaign yeah start to tech for each other's kind of yeah nonsense, that's part right? of the interesting kind of meta of our own right. one on one matchup yeah um, you were able to do a lot of damage to the Zangler in that turn, but I used my one banked command point inspiring to, to inspiring presence to them in the battle shot phase. Yeah, excellent use Which is great, which is exactly how that should work. Yeah, that's really uh, The Lord of Change just yells at them, I suppose. Stop it. Yeah, stop being such. <laughs> it's, only um, a, it's only a massive... Although, actually, that, that turn was also the turn that um, you used your command point because you rolled... This was so I managed to roll <laughs> re-roll some ones into ones quite a lot in this game mm. with my re-rolls because that's what I do. Yeah, um, you rolled two twos for a charge, a nine-inch charge from your paladors. Mm. Used your command point yeah, seven to, re- charge, to re-roll it. Yeah, seven-inch charge. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Used your command point to re-roll it and re-rolled it into a three. Yeah, <laughs> sad time for the paladors. At least my lord Aquila made it in and killed my herald my free herald but mm. get, kill my herald and capture that point for you as well yeah the, the, very, the power level of those units is really odd and I'm still figuring out what the paladors and the, uh, the lord aquilo are really kind of for they're sort of handy like, but they're not f- formulated but five, five wounds each on those things is no joke it's no joke like something to think about is that like average mortal wound levels mm. right like a unit of three paladors has approximately the same wound footprint as a Star Trek. Mm. That's, I mean, it's one, it's one fewer. Um, something I really find interesting in AOS, particularly when it comes to the kind of mortal wound debate, is that, like, mortal wounds don't care about saves. That's why they're good. Yeah. But they don't care about saves, which is why they're inefficient mm. against hordes. Mm. Like, if anything that isn't paying points for their save, mm. mortal wounds become really inefficient. Yeah. So anything you can get, like a Palador, for example, that packs in a bunch of wounds and can be a presence, either harassing a hero or this movement is locking down a well. shooting unit, for example. Like, I don't have... Like, if I had Skyfires in this mm. game and you could bring Paladors in, get them in combat... Yeah, for sure. Like, they might die, but those Skyfires aren't doing anything else Art- for the rest of the game. Artillery. I mean, they... Yeah. They, like, they're kind of... They're 200 points. They're only 40 points cheaper than Formulators. Um... But you have to do a lot of work with Hormones to unlock their damage output. You have to get the charge. Yeah. You have to, you're going to want the run and charge move ideally from something, either from the Vex of the Banner, from the Heraldor tooting at them to go faster. Like, you're going to have to position them really well and make sure if they're coming down from, uh, space that they're in the right position, they're going to, ideally they're going to land next to a hero, then give them rerolls of command points and just make sure you have to do a lot of other work to unlock their damage potential and that will cost points whereas for the paladors they kind of like as the vanguard should be they're, they're a very independent unit like they don't yeah. you don't have to this is the interesting thing about the star drake as well he's invincible in combat pretty much 
with the castellant nearby doing it. So essentially you're paying, I think, I think it's 565H or something like mm. that for the Lord's Edelstall Star Trek. Another hundred odd for the castellant. And that's actually an auto buy as a package. Yeah. And Paladors are independent and they, they can go and grab stuff. They can go get you. And they actually, they fuck up bad, like average units, like pink horrors and stuff. Yeah, or like, or like a lone hero or something. A lone like hero, they can just go out and hunt them, which yeah. is, it's such a cool fantasy, and it's also what they're supposed to be about. But this is what the kind of interesting thing in this game is that you brought them on appropriately to mm. kill the herald that I just summoned, and therefore kind of negating my initial fate point benefit yeah. mm. uh, before you cast, um, and also snatching the point. Mm. Um, but if I hadn't put that herald out there, then you could have brought them on the back line to snipe my other herald. Yeah. Like you know yeah. what I mean? The sort of they're killing something, right? or the kill the god summoner. Like yeah. they could have done a lot of these different things. Yeah. Like and that's 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 cool. That's that's like mm. that's you know, meaty kind of strategic game mm. stuff at that point. So I'm really kind of happy to have them around. Yeah, I'm definitely going to keep running them. They, um, in my first game of AOS 2 against Jim, they got deleted immediately after doing a heroic. They could ride the Windsor Theric, you roll, I think, six dice, and that's the number of inches they go. Which means they either go six inches, or they fucking book it across yeah. the board. That's a full-on siege mortal wound roll. It really is. There's a massive variance. They can either go half their normal speed, or look faster than anything else in the game. And they obviously can't charge out of that. They can shoot, I think, but, you know, it's there to capture objectives. It's to kind of... Yeah. It's almost like a pinball shot. They jump to light speed, basically. Yeah, yeah. They, they jump to chicken light speed. Which is kind of weird but kind of cool as well yeah. that's such an unusual unit yeah, also they just look amazing just love those models yeah and they're the best paint job you've done I think I think so I think I, I, think I love them and I'm going to keep running them regardless of the, what the <laughs> mess of says about them the um, we, should, we should move ahead because that's only end of your turn too. yes yeah. but what's really interesting is is that equalised you on points like that yeah. was 4-4 four four, despite a kind of rough start I could have been cleverer oh, so my attempts my movement attempts to snatch that point in that phase, no, so no, this that's the next phase actually. Yeah, so yeah. We'll, we'll we'll hold that one. Yeah. Well, because the, the crucial thing here is that um, I uh, won the roll off for mm. turn three again. So obviously I was I was lucky on roll offs, um, but for the first time that wasn't like um, I basically I was in a position whether or not I gave you a double turn mm. or not. And in, in yeah. previous edition, that's not a choice. Mm. Like I do not give you a double turn for no reason. Yeah. But in this one, because the player who goes second gets to move the first end of the spell, that was the distant, sorry, distant, the difference between the Geminids moving over your Star Drake, mm. uh, which lasts until the end of the round, yep. or them moving over my Zangle. Again, minus one attack, minus one to hit, Very good. which is potentially huge. Also, because in this particular scenario, which is the nice thing about the scenario, going second incurs all those points, I was actually in a position where that's a real choice, and mm. that's to the credit of this edition. Like, I had to think about that because logic says don't give your opponent a double turn, mm. but I did give you a double turn. Um, and but the it was the right time to do it because you were in a sort of attritional mm. position naturally by the yeah. fact that your star drake was locked in with the Zangor. It's also that if you take that turn and you catch the objective, you get one point. Then I probably do get it back. You know, I either, yeah, I run retreat the star drake onto it. Or I find a way of, you know, pushing the power doors up or doing something. Yeah, like that, right. You know, so it, it's partly the scenario, but it's partly just and the end of the spell. The combination of those two things made that decision very interesting. Yeah, but if the end of the spell's been in a different place, yeah, then maybe totally different, you know, maybe it's totally better. Different game. Yeah, and that's great because that means that's not just a binary win yeah. or lose roll. It's really smart, and I also love that those spells compared to just like kind of multi moon dice spells that as each do a lot. At least there's a movement factor. At least yeah. there's a kind of 
there's some sort of tactile interactive element to it that actually yeah. makes them feel a bit. And more. the debuff thing, right? Because mm. like those Geminids moved in in that in that turn. I moved them. They moved over your um, uh, Star Drake. Mm-hmm. They both did one mortal wound. So therefore, they were both immediately negated by your artifact. Mm. But the debuff was applied. Yeah, and that debuff was massive. Yeah, it was huge. Because, um, you know, for the rest of the thing, mm. like, um, so like all all my notes for that turn for you basically is sort of lots of attritional shooting. Like you 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 put the judicators into the upgrade thermoturge, and yep. even with the lookout sir rule, he was taking a lot of hits. Yeah, and then um. I think you were still playing for the Star Drake eating half the unit. Yeah, I hadn't really figured out that you know how that interacts with the way the new pile-in rules work. Um, but in future, that would have I'd have changed a lot by about how I used the Star Drake. Part part of that, I would have first of all just eaten the key, the key figures. I did repeatedly try to eat the banner guy. Uh, it just didn't come off. Yeah, it was too big. Banner's it was just too, too enormous, and he was looked disgusting and smelled bad. And then Star Drake wasn't interested. Uh, so I, I spent so much time eating dudes out of the middle of you to try and break it up, where it should have been just taking out heavy weapons, taking out. Well, you should have been guys, taking out shields, shield guys, yeah, for sure. And, and it's such a unique power; it's so rare uh, in the game to ever have the ability to pick a particular model in the unit and delete it. What I really like about that is that that is a perfect example of something we've been talking about, which is that. It's really easy to go like, okay, well, the new separate split unit rule means that any unit that can target a particular model, like Marathi can or mm. Giants or Star Drakes, yeah, yeah. is super powerful. Mm. Actually, it's not. But what it punishes is the kind of daisy chaining that was signature to a certain kind of, not exploitative play, but like min-maxing kind of screening. Yeah, yeah. Like, my Zangor weren't deployed in that way. They no. were sort of two or three deep at any time, so mm. they still look like a unit. They still look like a mob of warriors. I wasn't spaghettiing them around the table. Sure. And because I wasn't spaghettiing them around the table, they were that didn't work. That. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, the other thing I would have done is not ever used Royal Breath, which is the Royal Breath is the attack. This is super interesting. Yeah, yeah. so this is the attack where you... You attack one specific unit and roll. It, it, it sounds great against hordes and dice wise. It could be amazing. Like if you roll a crazy roll, you could just delete most of it. Uh, every, as I said before, roll one dice for every model in the unit. Each six is mortal wound. Brilliant against skeletons, which have one wound. Against Angor, which have two. Suddenly it's way less efficient. Should have been using his other ability, which is, I think called something like Star Strike. Whereas he just rolls at the heavens and comets start coming down onto enemy units across the table. And he rolled d6. And that's, you select that number of units, no range, just could be anywhere on the board. So you pick, you pick the heroes. You just go after the heroes, chip damage, uh, on a four plus they take d3 mortal wounds. And you do that every turn of the game and you probably kill a bunch of wizards by turn yeah. three. So this is a really crucial turning point because, mm. um, by this point, the Zangor were locked in a kind of attritional battle with the Star Drake. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek definitely winning. Yeah. Because you were killing a few Zangor, mm. and then I was losing Zangor fighting you. Mm. Um, I ended up... I had, my destiny roll for this game was really weird, and I had four sixes, which mm. is very good, mm. but no ones, which and a bunch of twos, yeah. which are useless. Yeah. So um, I ended up spending my remaining destiny twos to ensure that Zangor missed. Yeah, yeah. Which is hilarious, by the way. Which, <laughs> um, like you think going, stop it. Yeah. Because every time I wound you, you mm. roll a save. And every time you roll a save, you heal, pretty much. So it's yeah, like... Yeah, if you roll a six on save, you heal. But it was like, it was, the chance was not worth it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You, you just like, don't want to be attacking them, really. And yeah. I, I didn't really... I should have clocked earlier that that stalemate didn't need the shooting attack. I didn't need to break the stalemate. I would have stayed in it, whatever. And I could have been using the Star Drake to be doing an extra couple of wounds on you. I would say that, like, I think the... 
I think the two things that hurt you in this game, one was the retributors coming down, mm. and that was a cinematic decision that I would defend because it was exciting. It's pretty fun. Yeah, and that's, you know, like, it's really easy to get into the lens of, let's only talk about hyper-competitive. Yeah. You know, sometimes you want to see the cool thing happen. For sure, for sure. That was a cool moment. But the other thing was that, like, there's a, you know, the, the concept of, like, the distraction unit. Right. right? Like, the Sangor went from being a murder machine to being a very effective distraction unit because mm. the Star Trek really wanted to kill them. And it's sort of almost flavorful that the Star Trek was then like, fuck all these guys, all these guys yeah. and using your crazy wound range stuff on them. Mm. But what this meant was that that, because uh, every other time I've encountered a Star Trek, it's been the D3 mortal wounds yeah. on the shitload of units mm-hmm. thing. And that really sucks uh, because it kills heroes. Most yeah. siege heroes have five wounds. So two turns of that and a lot of them are potentially, gone. Yeah. yeah, potentially. Three turns on average, most of them are gone. And just bump in the Lord of Change down a notch, so yeah. a lot of his spells aren't as good. really big deal is that the um, Lord of Change was on maximum efficiency the entire game. Mm. Like, never got bumped down. Um, and that's a, that's a sort of... Um, my spell casting roles were very cold early in the game, mm. but that's something that you can't rely on happening forever, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so, maybe to move ahead a bit. So, um, I then got my third turn after you'd gone. Mm. Um, rushed at the objective that your Lord Aquila had taken from him. Actually committed the Lord of Change to combat, committed some pink horrors to combat, mm. and um, managed to um, grab that objective. So you you taken the first turn, right? So you got one point back. Yeah. So you were then ahead by 1.5 to 4. Yeah. And then I moved the Lord of Change up, I moved my pink horrors up. Um, the Lord of Change did a decent amount of wounds to the Lord Aquila in combat. Yeah, it got down to three wounds. Yeah. Um, and then um, the Pink Horrors lost six of their number mm. fighting... Some Paladors just piled in. Yeah. yeah, and they did loads of damage to them. They're good against a particular type of unit, I think. Yeah. Uh, the particularly the Steeds. Who mm. they can, they've got lots of random... It's a really interesting thing, right? That, like, now the Pink Horrors are so expensive, mm. like, the threat of a Palador unit is actually Much quite greater, significant, it, yeah. right? Mm. But, um, so those pink horrors, um, but nonetheless, getting that Lord Change in range of the objective meant that Lord Change counts as 20 models because it's a wizard. Yep. So that meant I could grab that objective back and pull ahead um, 7 to 5. And that was basically that turn for me. It was just more attritional combat between mm. the Star Drake and the Sangor and that key voice. move up the side. At that point, the objective did um, a crazy move <laughs> And basically flew up the Star Drake's ass. Yeah, it just went right up to where, just right underneath the base. Like if you were worried about getting that massive base into range of yeah, that objective, suddenly there was no way for it not to be in range. Yeah, and that was actually a really crucial moment for the game mm. because if it had stayed away, I probably would have kept playing keep away kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that point, I had gone to this point where I was like, "Fuck, I can't kill the Star Drake with the Zangle. and killing it with mortal wounds is taking forever." Mm. Uh, compared to the threat posed by the Lord Aquila, the Palidors, the Celestine. Like, there's a lot of reasons to try and, like, not... You know, when you've got that D3 negation of mortal wounds every single time, there's a, there's a good reason to see where else you can use them. Yeah. Right, where they're not going to be constantly yeah, whittled down. As soon as the objective flew up the Star Drake's bomb, mm. which is unique to the scenario, yes. I realized that I kind of had to kill the Star Drake. Yeah. And so... Um, then I won the roll-off again. I appreciate I won every roll-off in this game, mm-hmm. which is a thing. Yeah, it helps. I think the lack of 
wizard counter was, yeah. was the main thing, really. And then basically, like, two things happened at once. One was, obviously, I got the roll-off, and then I took it. Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting game, because I won the roll-off every time, but it was like, I gave you the first one, and then I got a double turn, mm. and then I gave you a double turn, right, yeah. and then I gave me a double turn. Yeah. Um, and I did that because I realized that, like, if I don't kill the Star Drake now, I probably lose the game mm. on attrition. Yeah. Uh, if I give you the turn, you probably wipe out the Zangor that turn. Because by that point, I lost all the shield people who can negate mortal wounds. Yeah. Um, the, the Paladors. The Paladors and the Aquila probably hurt the Lord of Change. They could change. take a Lord of Change. They can, yeah. yeah. Which is an interesting thing to learn. Yeah. Like, if I'd given you, if you'd won that roll off mm. and taken the turn, I think you probably would have won. Mm. Because you probably would have killed the Lord of Change. Star Trek would have killed all the Zangor. Mm. And then it would just be you sat on the objective. And because you have those two heroes with artifacts. Yeah. You know, they're just, yeah, without the laws of change. Like, th- there's nothing on the table that could, the Orcroid was, uh, I dead. believe, dead by this point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, in the, that round of combat, the Judicates have been chipping him down really well, and that's what they're for. They, yeah, despite lookouts there as well. Yeah, despite that, they, they, they still have the ability to do that. They've got that rend, that one rend is so good on. Uh, and between that and the, um, so I split my attacks between the Zangor and the, uh, Stardrake himself, like, just turned around and bludgeoned. The Orgroid's death, which was pretty satisfying. Uh, so yeah, w- with that gone, it was going to be tough. Like without the Lord of Change, without the spells, it's going to be hard. Yeah, it's going to be hard shifting. So luckily, I won that roll off. Mm-hmm. Um, took the turn, and then just realised that like, okay, well, I was coy about it earlier, but now yeah. it's Star Drake melting time, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Firestorm did nothing again for the third time in the game, but I got an extremely hot roll for Infernal Gateway. Yeah. And this is the thing that makes that decision about which of the Star Trek abilities you use really interesting, because mm. Firestorm is not affected by how many wounds the Lord of Change has taken at all. Yeah. Uh, Infernal Gateway is. This mm. is the one where the Lord of Change pulls people into space. And that one, it's... Um, you roll nine dice, and based on... And then the... If you, the Lord of Change has taken no wounds, or less than three, three or less wounds... Every roll of three up is a mortal wound. Yeah. Uh, which is potentially really big. Mm. Um, it'd be very cold the entire game, but as the mortal wound, as the Lord Change takes damage, that goes to four up, five up, six up. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was still in that three up boundary, that allowed for, I got an insanely lucky roll mm. and I got all nine. So I suddenly had nine mortal wounds into the Star Trek, yeah. which was enough to finally kill it. Yeah. And then one of the surviving units of Pink Horrors. Well, f- so the, f- the comedy moment was my, uh, Herald bouncing fold reality through a portal to hit my now heavily wounded unit of pink horrors because on the previous turn I'd rolled two consecutive sixes on Battleshock mm. just so you understand that dice go both ways for sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then so rolled a six on Battleshock for the pink horrors two of them ran away having lost six mm. and then the following turn cast fold reality I roll a d6 on a two up I restore that many models to the unit on a one, the entire unit is wiped out. Right. As the dice left my hand, I knew it was going to be a one. And it was a one. <laughs> so so I killed my unit of pink horrors for no but, reason. I think there are only two left. There were only two, two left, yeah, but yeah. like, that's a wizard mm. in range of that objective. Well, actually, but, no. yeah. but it's, it's potentially a wizard moving in to, to cast that's a spell to, yeah. you know, give me more fate points. Like, yeah. yeah. I paid 200 points for them, damn it. They're expensive. Like, yeah. Um, uh, so that was funny. But then, um, nine mortal wounds from the Lord of Change. Into the Star Drake, mm. your D three doesn't save matter, really. doesn't matter. Then no. Star Drake gets pulled into space and annihilated, mm. as Lord of Change does. What Lord of Change sometimes does. Yep. And then unchecked mutation from another unit of Pink Horrors kills the Castellan, 
Mm. At which point both of your relic holding heroes die in a single pair of rolls, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The thing is about those spells that Zinch have that are really, have their really high mortal wound potential. If it was a once a game Hail Mary thing that they could do, then it would seem fairer. Yeah. But when they could do it time and time and time again, and there's no counter to it, unless you have auto and binds or something else, or a load of wizards. And to be honest, like, you can't, it's very difficult to unbind each as it kind of should be, because you have so yeah. many pluses to the rolls that you're going to be, have to roll nine plus, ten plus to actually get rid of that stuff. And, and, um, the variance of those spells is so extreme that it feels like they shouldn't be able to do it over and over again, because over the course of a game, it's going to happen. You're going to get a great roll. It's a really interesting one, because over the course of, like, a tournament, mm. it works out, because there are armies that can reliably unbind each. Both Death and Seraphim can do it. Yeah. Like, consistently. Mm. And it's really scary, because, like, Death have loads of access to, like, up to, like, plus four unbind, mm. which is yeah, kind yeah. of nuts. Like, Zeke yeah. can't reliably go over 13 to cast, which yeah. is still a lot. And death can reach up to 14, 15. Yeah. yeah. Um, it feels like it's a weakness of Stormcast specifically. Like, mm. they really can't handle it. They can't handle that. Like, yeah. They, yeah. But even but anything, like, the fact that you, on one given roll, if those, both, both those spells could have gone off to them, uh, to a high potential, you could have been doing, like, 20, 30 mortal wounds in one round. Yeah, so I've never, seen, I've never seen Firestorm do more than three mortal wounds yeah. ever, which is, but, but the potential the, is, the potential is crazy. Yeah. And that, I agree with you, that is. Because that ruins the game if it's that much. Yeah, you're right. Like, it's, an, it's a really interesting one because, like, on one hand, I've played a lot of games with this army mm. and I've, I've seen swings every single different way, right? Like, sure, I've played sure. armies that are incredible in a phase that I can't even touch them in. Like, mm. uh, like uh, bone splitters or something like that, where you can't... What the hell do you do? Yeah. Um, and so you, you, you know, you have to... You know, the Firestorm's a really interesting spell, because it's an option. You don't have to take it. Mm. The, the 27 mortal wound. But the only reason you take it on a, mo- on a Lord of Change is because they're the only model that can reliably cast it. Yeah. So you, because it's cast on a nine, and that's just not going to happen most of the time, unless you're a lot of change. Mm. And then it's really swingy. So you you are doing, you're already paying 380 points and an opportunity cost of taking that spell rather than something more consistent like Bolt of Zinch, mm. which is cast on an 8d6 mortal wounds, yeah. which is reliably does more damage for the chance that it goes off. But they they get so many casting attempts. They get they get two, but they can only cast one. You can only attempt to cast a spell once. You can only attempt to get, but even then, like it's not like that's the whole output for that character. Not not that's at all, the, not at know. all. But that's a particular spell. So right? they they can go off. And they can just sort of go. Okay, for the first thing, I'm going to potentially do 28, 27 mortal wounds with this spell. No, that didn't go off. I'll do the other thing that could potentially do you know fifteen nine. or nine yeah. or d six. You know, it's not. It's like they, especially with the cogs and stuff. They and the mirrors. It yeah, gets I think I think crazy. with with it in a perfect turn hmm. with cogs, an order change could do like thirty something mortal wounds, forty mm. something mortal wounds. And obviously the math is mad on that. Like yeah. you're just not gonna see it really. But the, the just the variance but it doesn't have to be max efficiency. If it's even two thirds efficient, that's insane. <laughs> yeah. So like, I always take Firestorm on my Lord of Change, mm. and it has never done anything. Mm. Like, ever. <laughs> like, in our game today, it did zero. Like, I didn't roll a single six. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and that's against the odds, right? Like, but, it's, but it's a throwaway cast when you've got those three casts. In the it is, change. but it's also a huge opportunity cost because mm. that's that's a spell I'm taking instead of something more consistent, mm. right? Like I'm making a decision there, and also because I have a finite number of casts, like I was running out of, you know, obviously, like so. Actually, we should say for the sake of the podcast mm. that after the Castellan and the uh, the Star Drake died. We called it. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, was yeah. No, like, so that was then a, a win for me. Yeah. And it was off two lucky moments. One was winning the turn, mm. and the second was one of the two Lord of Change spells. Mm. Just going Doing off. enough more wins. Mm. Um, but you could have done that on turn one if you wanted. Turn possibly, two. or it could have whiffed it. Like, turn three. Yeah. It just, it, it feels like Zinch gets to delete that. Yeah, or that not. Character. Pretty much over the probably not turn one mm. based on the range requirements of stuff. Yeah, probably yeah. not. Yeah, like so. I think I get. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I get that it special destiny dice feels you guarantee bad. Those casts, but I feel like with um, you can guarantee those casts sort of. But obviously, auto unbinds exist. Like that was an interesting thing in this game. Yeah, like well, I was committing destiny sixes mm. to casting attempts. Knowing that you might then use your auto unbind, yeah. therefore wiping out not only the spell, but also part of my allegiance ability. Yeah, I didn't quite get to use it because of how things shook out because of. Uh, yeah, because you did use it. And I then, used it on yeah, the thing. That, yeah, that's fair. Um, because I, I would have certainly unbound the mirrors <laughs> the second time they went out. Yeah. Um, because the mirrors are very, very good as each. Um, like crazy good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a matter of variance and how it feels and how mm. it really affects the game. So if you're playing an individual, individual game, if you're not playing, you know, games nights every once or twice a week where all this stuff shakes out, if you're just playing once every few weeks, that kind of variance actually kind of has a, a much bigger impact on the That's game. True. Than it That's true. That's really good should, point. Which is, yeah. which is interesting. It depends how you play the game as well. I think it does. I think, I think the thing I like about the way each designed at the moment, the fact that it isn't a consistent amount of damage mm. is it feels very fickle. Mm. Like I had, I had. To be honest, in this game, the vast majority of my damage came from the Zang Law. Mm. The spells were super cold. Like at the beginning of the game, we were talking about me rerolling ones into ones. Yeah, right. For sure. Like it did happen. Like I was spending the opportunity cost of my command ability that allows me, my artifact, sorry, that allows me to reroll ones to cast. Mm. All of this stuff that just wasn't doing anything for me. And it was then I got lucky at the right time, which is often what these things come down to. Mm. I feel like. It's cool. I think it's cool that a Lord of Change is not a laser that fires a certain amount of damage over time. Mm. It's a time bomb. And the longer it's left alone... Yeah, it's, you know what I mean? More chances like, this is, why, this is why it was important to me. Like, if I had ended up wiping out the Star Drake with an insanely lucky Firestorm roll, mm. where it's just number wang, yeah. then, yeah. That's, it always feels that way with each. That's true. Yeah, but obviously, like... And obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. If those Star Drake mortal wound things had mm. been chipping the Lord of Change down over the course of the game, yeah. that final roll probably wouldn't have happened. Mm. Like, and therefore, you know, you've got that. There's, I think for me, a lot of this stuff comes down to like, was there something to learn mm. from it? And I think there was there, which is like, don't leave a Lord of Change alone. Whatever yeah. you do, like, just, just do some damage. To do it, some. Do something yeah, yeah. to it. Like, yeah. have a plan to do whatever to it. Like, mm. even if it means ignoring an objective to throw Paladors at it, because mm. you're right, the Paladors and the Aquila will kill it. Mm. Completely. Yeah. Is it, maybe not, but they, they would certainly do enough damage, I think, to... They get yeah. guaranteed mortal wound out of the the blade of the prime. They do enough kind of... There's rend two attacks on yeah. the chickens, three attacks each that are pretty good against... Because that puts you up to a six plus save, I think, on a Lord of Change. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, so the, the, they are effective. The, 
and that's reasonable. Is it, it's just uh, once that knight in Cantor went off the board, mm. which was pretty early, it felt like that's it for my involvement in the game. It's down to the dice now. Like it's down to because yeah, if that's fair, if you'd if you'd really wanted to and you'd have focused everything on the side rake, you could have gone off by turn two, probably have yeah. gone by turn three, and that is just the the counter to that is either park your side rake in space, uh, put it in the corner of the board like far away from everything mm-hmm. not affecting anything just star striking stuff um, but I wanted to pilot I wanted to, it yeah. to do what it's supposed to do and get stuck in and be wrecking this stuff is, this is something I've experienced with like um, whenever I go up against like a really shooty army mm. like um, Cunning Ruck was the perfect example of this yeah. like Carriage Run or something like that where it's like it doesn't matter where I put my Lord of Change yeah. I'll never get it's to use gonna this get, it's gonna die. like it's never going to do die. anything yeah. I think it's, it's something about AOS's design mm. that means that like certain things just have foils mm. and the Star Drakes is Mortal Wounds the Lord of Changes is shooting really like Lord of Changes just doesn't yeah. like shooting at all like if you'd had shitloads of Judicators suddenly I have to be much more careful with where it goes yeah, there's some pretty horrendous stuff you can do with the new Stormcast Battle Tome, um, which lets you drop... Yeah, you'll be teleporting ballistas on top of me. stuff. I mean, yeah, to an extent. I don't really want to... No, that's I fair. don't want to, I mean, it's well, so like, mean. <laughs> yeah, I like... So, I, th- I, th- I think it's, like, on one hand, I completely get the feel thing, and I think you're completely right about, like, frequency of game mattering yeah. in this context. Um, like, I'm going to use Lord Change less as things go on. I'm going to threaten it more as, like, if you let me get to 36 fate points, <laughs> this guy's coming. Like, come on. Yeah. I kind of, yeah. it's, it's kind of a shame. It's kind of a shame that he's, the way he deals damage feels so dicey that it yeah. could, that's it. There's no kind of interaction. But this is what, what I find really interesting about it is, you know, for a lot of this game, we, ha- we pointed out as we were playing, there was a really nice symmetry to the fact that our yeah. big monsters were like facing each other, but not engaging with each other. Yeah. But actually they're opposite creatures. Like, you know, I was sort of like, I was using destiny dice to make my own units miss mm. because I have to hit something that mathematically I can't hurt, will hurt me when I try and hurt it mm. and will heal it itself. itself. Yeah. Like there's, that's the opposite of dicey. Right? Like, the Star Drake's rolls with Castle and Buff are so consistent. Mm. It's not that they remove dice from contention, but, like, the opposite of dicey is that. Right? Yeah. Rerolling a one-up save, rerolling ones, mm. whatever it ends mm. up being. You have to roll a one into a one to hurt him, pretty much. Yeah, or a one into a two. Yeah. Uh, with Rend. Yeah, you need Rend as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You like, just need Rend as well. So, like, on one end of the extreme, you have extreme non-diciness, mm. where it's like, it's not, there's like, if I could choose to not participate at all... Yeah. I wouldn't participate at all mm. because I only help you by engaging with the rolling of dice. Mm. That's not undesirable, but it's kind of weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like you no, could have retreated onto the paddles and stuff like that. I could. Well, I couldn't have retreated onto them, but I could have gotten you know moved the whole bulk away. You know, I could have done. Yeah, you, you're right. Yeah, um, I think you know you have choices either way, right? You could have flown the star break out of range. The world changed. Like yeah. there's you know yeah. But then that's 580 points in the corner of a board, not doing yeah, anything. Exactly. Well, so for 480 the points for me, right? Like, yeah, so was he 380? Um, the Lord of Change is 380, the Zangos are 480. I still think 380 is tasty for a Lord of Change. It is good, yeah. Yeah. What I'm saying is you have options. And yep. what I'm saying is the game is kind of like split between extremes. Like, mm. you know, that's, I, I guess I'm not justifying how it feels. Like, yeah. Because yeah. I, I completely agree with you. It sucks when... I think, uh, yeah, high variance mortal wound attacks feel bad both ways. So if you roll like Firestorm time and time again and it flunks, it feels awful for you. Yeah. <laughs> because you're like, you deserve more out of it odds-wise than you're getting. If it goes hard the other way, it's awful for the other person who's going to delete something. And this happened in my game against Chimp on Thursday where I um, 
I mean, I actually really approve of the changes to Star Soul Maces and the changes to Dracoth Breath that basically even out the variance of those units. Yeah. So they, they do more sensible and predictable damage that mm. doesn't feel awful for you or the opponent. So uh, the Star Drake, uh, the old, sorry, um, Fulminator Breath, what used to work, they each get D3 attacks. And then uh, there's two of them. So let's say you get, you know, I'll roll five and a six. So you've got six attacks there. Each three plus does two mortal wounds. And I just did ten mortal wounds to one of his biggest heroes and killed it. Out of nowhere, really. Like, mm. And it had nothing to do with my skill <laughs> or, you know, the fact that I'd done anything to deserve that. And it just felt, like, so shitty for him that his mm. hero was just deleted by this, you know, weird wang of, you know, chance. The wang of chance. <laughs> uh, That's uh, a very Zinchian phrase. Chancey wang. Uh, and, and that, like, I think the less that in the game, probably the better for everyone. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm interested in that because yeah. I think, I mean, this is a bigger discussion, so we have to return to. Mm. I think AOS is somewhat defined by these punishing spikes mm. and that you have to account for what can happen, not just what will probably happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, 40k is a bit more of a consistent game mm. and, um, X-Wing is a more consistent game. This is one of the only reasons why that comparison is kind of, uh, viable. And X-Wing, the first edition was eventually kind of killed by reliability. Mm. Because when there's a certain kind of median that everything kind of hears around, anything that pushes that just a slightly, slightly bit in the wrong direction wins mm. every time. And so X-Wing 1.0 is kind of defined by extremely reliable things. X-Wing 1.0 is the game that hypothetically Stormcast win every time. Right. Because there's nothing that can upset the simple reliability of a good save, mm. for example. Not that the analogy totally holds. That's like a, that's, that's a, a, diff, a totally opposite extreme to what's happening. I think AOS is quite far into the weeds the other direction. Yeah, exactly. It is. Yeah. Which is interesting. And like, almost, there's almost a kind of like appropriate thing where it's like the counter to Stormcast is chaos. It's like having this thing <laughs> like completely yeah. can go off the chain, but might not. Mm. Like, I don't know. I think there's territory here. Like, I think I would agree with you in that I think, I think in order to kind of keep, I think, you know, you need a Lord Arcanum in your army. Yeah. You need some Encantors. If Evocators are also wizards. Yes. Right? Like, you know, those kind of nuts cat riding Evocators. <laughs> yeah. Like you get some of them in, suddenly you're interacting in every single phase of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think that's probably where the fact that that feels a little bit mandatory, that sucks. Mm. It's cool though. But there's a way, there's yeah. a roadmap here that, that there wasn't previously. Yeah, that's true. Well, previously it just wasn't possible to talk about anything at all. If anything, this gives you a really good narrative reason to bring the Sacrosanct Chamber into play. Yeah. You know Wait a minute. <laughs> they could fuck us up at any time. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. Um, the Evocators, I think, are a much more interesting and fun unit than Paladins as well in terms of even with the Star Soul Mace reworks. Um, so uh, we've probably talked about this already in the podcast, so I won't go get into it. I think the new implications of the way they work is super nice and they're a good fighter unit that does a lot of mortal wound output, but quite predictably. So for each evocation in the unit, you roll two die, two d6, so on a four plus it does mortal wound. You know that if you kill two evocators, you're, you're removing a certain amount of mortal wound output. Yeah, right. It's not about three star soul maces that hide in the middle of all these wounds and you can never get at them. It's more about consistent, you know. Yeah. The more damage you do, the more you reduce their capacity for damage. I think as we play more in this campaign and as we can move on with these armies in 2.0, mm. I think the, cons- the question of consistency is something we should return to. Yeah. Cause I want to See know how, how it feels, feels right? Mm. Like, cause, um, yeah, cause I feel like this is sort of like, 
you know, an interesting loss for you because it mm. sort of like shapes how you decisions you make, but anyway, in a good thing, right? Like it could work out interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I still loved the kind of how it all played out. I love that the Aquila and the Paladors actually did something or were effective and proved yeah. a role in the army, which is they certainly did in the last game when they got deleted, uh, against, uh, Jim's amazing flesh eater course mm. army. Uh, and the Star Trek kind of showed what he's for, like what that yeah, you cannot ignore general is like, you know, and also, it kind of informs the general's personality as well. Kind of, he's not like Tantris, who felt like uh, a, a crusader. Like he's there like, to go and yeah, a bit of Leroy Jenkins. Take it, yeah, definitely. Not entirely the, the smartest guy, but there's this new, more kind of, uh, just more somber uh, presence in in the Lord Hunters that's gonna. Like these games always for me inform the story that follows. So yeah. the Aquila and the Paladors now have a I've got a sense of what they're like and what they they want to do. Yeah, and we said that this this game will inform the next scenario we play. Yes. Which will be the, the, and this is really now really interesting because mm. we're going to play there's one from the Malign Sorcery uh, book which where one player is channeling a spell in the middle and has to try and finish it. Yeah, and the other player has to kind of attack from all sides. Yeah. And the winner of this game is the one who has to be defending in the next one. Mm. So now that I've seized the power of the erratic ball. <laughs> you've I retrieved will. it from the Star Drake's ass and yeah, uh, set exactly. it to its well, purpose Star Drake to space ball yeah. to me <laughs> that's a horrifying image yeah um, I will um, yeah I'll be defending which is interesting yeah, for each, yeah it's like sure. suddenly like a different a totally different type of game yeah it's gonna be good cool uh, great and that was that was our first game of AOS 2.0 it was dramatic it was it was good the beastman the beastman beat up the hammerman they did now the men need to have a good long think back at <laughs> home about what they're for now. So thank you, past Tom and Chris. I'm so confused now with the timeline, Chris. So when we when we left, so the, the listeners have just departed a timeline uh, where I am very sorry for melting your dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten over it, though, now in the future. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of days have passed. Yeah. By the time you listen to this, I'm all mellow which about is the it same now. timeline in which the first half of this podcast just recorded. Yeah. Um, so in this timeline, you're more mellow about it now. Well, I think, I, I think it was very much a case that my Star Drake was actually literally invincible <laughs> in every other respect than, you know, you hit his, the only weakness he had. So which is being dragged into space by a big bird. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, do, I think the Castle and Star Drake combo is a bit silly still and probably needs one to thing change. that's sort of interesting, maybe as a coded to the battle report that, um, has come up since, uh, we played that game hmm. is, uh, I think it was a six nations tournament, uh, which was happening kind of simultaneous with, with our game. Where uh, Star Drakes with lenses of refraction have become a thing. That does not surprise me based on that artifact and how it yeah. performed. Super good. Um, but also, um, and Zinch changed substantially, partly in, in, in reaction to the amount of, um, and this is very, very early days, amount of uh, mortal wound saves going around. Mm. But also, um, it seemed like from what I was reading about how that tournament panned out, that Lords of Change have kind of emerged as kind of monster killers that mm. this is sort of what they're for they die to a strong breeze or an archer a group of archers that look at them the wrong way mm. they don't like combat etc but if you point them at your opponent's big single model whether that's um things that are very very powerful in this edition like a lariel mm. or a star drake or nagash or archaon or croak um the, you know, a Lord of Change is the, the big gun that lets you take that thing off the table in a single turn. And I think that's really interesting because you and I encounter that in the dynamic of like, this is my favorite model that I carry around in a shoebox like a 
puppy. <laughs> yeah, that's literally how I bought it. Don't carry it. a puppy around in a shoebox, everybody. <laughs> um, like when I, sorry, uh, when I brought the Star Trek over to uh, Chris's place to play this this game. I showed him the transport method, and it was like the start of Lady and the Tramp, <laughs> where Lady's like in a little box and pops out. Because I had like tea towels. And, I'll put like, a picture you know, in the show notes. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> I, it, I, yeah. It worked on the way here. Yeah, wing broke on the way back. <laughs> but there's a different. What I'm saying is, there's a different. Oh, really? It's fine. Okay. Yeah, I fixed it. Um, there's a different dynamic between I don't want to take off my friend's prize model mm. in a single turn of magic nonsense. Which you could have done anything. And we're playing in a tournament. <laughs> right. So this is the thing this, I brought this for, yeah, right? Like yeah, I brought, yeah. I paid 380 points on this Lord of Change, so I don't have to deal with this. <laughs> mm. Yeah. 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 Need to unbind those mirrors as well. Yeah, you those do. And I think that's, and that's the other thing is thinking about it. Like I've been, cooking up in my head some like absurd combos that are possible now mm. so there's a zinch spell that was previously shit and it's now good and that for me is the mark of a good rule system is when you go back i reread the zinch battle time in the last mm. couple of days and just like holy shit there are there are things here i never would have used because either the hero that they're good on isn't viable because they'll never be i'm talking about like hypothetical theory crafty competitive stuff, stuff right yeah like this hero is not good so this artifact is Moot, right, whatever, yeah. right? Moot compared to taking Skyfires yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. right? To like, oh, there's loads of possibilities in this, in this now. Um, and, uh, one of them is, is a, a spell called, I think it's Arcane Sacrifice, where you deal D3 mortal wounds to a unit. Hero deals D3 mortal wounds to a unit. Then that hero gains uh, an extra nine inches to their casting range hmm. and plus one to cast for the rest of, until your next hero phase. So here's this. How's this for bullshit that I probably won't do to you, but yeah. I want to say it. So I ha- don't have to do it. Let's do it. Cause I'd rather say it now rather than do the battle report where you're sad about let's, me doing let's this. Let's do it with words. Okay. All right. So Gaunt Summoner with the plus one to cast from the familiar mm. goes up on a Bellwind Vortex plus in my first turns. Plus six inches. Plus six range. inches to cast, right? So still on plus one, right? Yeah. Then that Gaunt Summoner, uh, that's a free spell cast, casts uh, Arcane Sacrifice on a pink horrors. Mm. Does D3 mortal wounds to the unit of pink horrors, gains another nine inches to cast, and plus one. So then that Gaunt Summoner casts Umbral Spell Portal at their own base to get the first one. But then the second spell portal, which would previously be 18 inches away, it can now be up to 31 inches away because it gets plus six and plus nine. Hmm. Does the War Scroll not overrule the core rule there? No, because it never has for a Gaunt Summoner. Like, it's, you just add the range. Because, huh. because like with a lot of the end of the spells, it'll say something like so. For Geminids, it'll say these two things have to be within six inches of each other. Yeah, it's not true for the. It's just, um I guess maybe maybe that's an interesting debate. Mm. Mm. I think that's where that's where the TO might. Uh, yeah, this has been. Mm, that's an interesting point. So anyway, then <laughs> you use your destiny one on the pink horror battle shock that you've just forced on yourself so by killing the pink horrors. Yeah, but. In the old rules, you had to pay points if you wanted to increase the pink horror unit beyond its original size. Mm. Let's say I got lucky on the D3 mortal wounds and only did one. And let's say I get lucky on the D6 return to the unit battle shock and roll a six. Yeah. I've now got a 15 strong unit of pink horrors. So you just get those and they're free. Yep. Oh. Because that, that whole side of the rules has been completely removed. Interesting. That's nonsense. Yeah. And you've got like this mega 
Rage, and spell portal. I get blue horror points when they die. That's true. So that gives you an even greater potential summoning pool. Yeah, exactly. In the future, which is pretty sweet. It exponentially increases the points value of my army. Nice. And that's just the magic of nonsense. That's just the and the nonsense of, of magic. The nonsense of zinch. Uh, though so, it's, if it seems, um, I do quite, uh, so the new pink horrors, they're 200 points. And, but it does seem like the, the blue horrors are hard to get out, especially if you've got to have the heroes in the right place. I think so I'm I excited about art. So the, we have now played the battle report. So people all know that I won, which means that I'm defending in the next scenario yes. where I have to protect yeah. a ritual site from you. Mm. And I'm probably going to be using pink horrors to screen, which I wasn't in this game where I was using them to attack. Yeah. And when I'm using the screen, it becomes, it'll become a lot harder for you to deny me. The blue horror points. That's true. I think. Yeah. Because you'll probably yeah. have to kill them. Yeah. Then you've got to have a hero. Then you've got to find a, a space nine inches away from everything else. That Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah. It becomes tricky, right? It yeah. does become tricky. And that's super interesting. Like, mm. it's like, are they worth it? Like, um, in the time since we played that game, I've now finally picked up a box of Chiracacolites and I'm looking forward to having cheaper battle lines so mm. that I can... Yeah, so it seems like Zinch definitely needs that now. Yeah. For sure. Well, they've become really good because one of the other big changes uh, for Chaos is that Chaos Marauders now have a minimum unit size of 20 in match play, mm. uh, which is, doesn't sound massive, but it is because I think like the, I'm might be exaggerating, but I think the top three lists at London GT were all hyper powerful chaos stuff. Normally Nurgle with Archeon mm. built around with three units of 10 Chaos Marauders at 60 points each right. to meet battle line tax. So that's going to That's as cheap that. as it can get is like 180 points just yeah. to be battle line. So they were basically the equivalent of Direwolves for death, where it's just a thing you yeah. take 120 points, you've done your battle line. So now that they are, um, you have to have 20 points of them. Mm. So I think it's still 120 points for, for a unit. unit. It's it, large. It, it, it does increase our tax, but Karakakalites are 70 points for 10. Okay. And that's battle line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, uh, changes things. And they're a really interesting unit, actually, I think. And I think they'll be, they'll be really interesting to play with against you, uh, when you get your wizards online. Mm. Because if a wizard successfully casts a, if an enemy wizard successfully casts a spell within 18 inches of Karakakalites, their pet vulture bites them <laughs> <laughs> and does one more wound. Nice. Every time. Wow. That's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, which is time to take more mortal wound resistance artifacts. Indeed. Yeah. On every hero. So, <laughs> but like, but now I can bring a nonsense bird to a <laughs> hammer fight. Again, it's birds, but it's still birds. It AOS is. 2, second edition, but it's all still birds, really. It is. It is. It's birds all the way down. Well, no, it is, isn't it? Top to bottom. Mm. Birds, top to bottom. I think we've, this is probably like a, three and a half hour podcast at this point i think it deserves it and yeah. i think we'll have plenty more to say in two I, weeks. I think maybe as a as a wrap-up like i have never felt i felt like consistently really excited about this hobby mm. and like really motivated to do more stuff and not just in a kind of like i want to buy things kind of way but in a like i'm really excited about the stories and stuff and yeah, yeah. and being part of this universe and painting cool models and playing these narrative campaigns so good job games workshop yeah good, good job <laughs> good yeah. job making me an adult man <laughs> very excited about the tiny plastic people again yep love the uh love the core book especially i think outstanding job yeah it's, it's, it's a, a good <laughs> and that brings this podcast special to an end i think uh if you like to send us a question for the next actual episode you can do so by emailing us at miniatures at creightoncrowbar.com uh, as ever, uh, everything Crit and Crowbar does is, is supported by our Patreon backers, for whom we're very grateful. 
You can find out more about our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. <laughs> you can find our computer game podcasts, occasional Bloodborne series that we really need to get yeah, back to, to get Tom. Back to that. <laughs> um, at uh, youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. And you can find our miniatures business on Instagram primarily. Oh, well, you can find miniatures monthly on Twitter at minis monthly, mm. uh, where we, we sometimes post mostly dumb jokes. Uh, but you can find Tom and I's, uh, miniatures stuff on Instagram. I'm at exit warp. That's E X I T W A R P. Tom. I am at Ludo paints minis, uh, L U D O paints minis. Lovely. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening, everybody.